and welcome to this week's Three Legs Four Wheels F1 podcast. It's Paul here with Sean, Chris, Lee, and we're joined by a special guest this week, Craig Scarborough. Welcome along, Craig. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming back on. It's it's becoming a bit of a tradition, is this the um, post testing pre pre season show? I think the fourth one you've done with us now. Is it really? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. This this is for me. This is Christmas. This is the. Absolutely, the peak time of year for me to see all the new cars, see them testing, and all them first sort of big changes. So um, yeah, this really is uh, great fun, and um, yeah, it's nice to be back here. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Um, first question we've got to ask is, what impressed you about the um, about the twenty twenty one cars? It's another of those wide ranging scattergun questions. <laughs> um, I, I think the the, the the surprising thing for me, bearing in mind, yeah, there have been some rule changes and the teams have had quite a bit of time um, to dedicate to this before they were able to start to focus a little bit on the 2022 cars, is how little they've actually done to their cars. Um, you know, it, it, the thing that impressed me was that the lack of, <laughs> the lack of being impressed. Um, and I know we're going to see, obviously, see a lot of developments, um, particularly around the sort of the floors and the diffusers, which is the, bit, the key regulation changes this year. But no one's really come up with anything that I looked at and went, oh, wow, uh, oh, I didn't expect that. So um, that was probably the first thought. I think the, the, the second thing is just how competitive it's starting to look a little this year. Um, you know, that kind of that midfield group, you know, Red Bull have really made a, quite a leap. And you know, we'll talk about Mercedes, but, you know, clearly, I mean, I think there's them not performing quite so well in the uh, three days of testing does kind of just build up the optimism. Um, however <laughs> baseless that optimism may be but uh, yeah I, I, again I think you know just three days of testing really didn't give us an opportunity to, to really kind of get stuck in the way we would normally do and it's obviously clearly the same for the teams yeah cause I mean, in, a, in a normal season would have had uh, would have had six days so would have would have seen more and possibly more developments as the uh, as the test went on but of course with um, the, the overall lack of changes for for this season that uh, FOM wanted to bring in and cause the current COVID situation, that wasn't going to be possible. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned the diffusers and the floors being the uh, being the sort of key areas this season. There's been a lot of been a lot of fuss about um, McLaren's diffuser and the fact that they may have found a loophole. Are they are they the new brawn? Um, no, no, not at all. Um, and um, I mean, I've I've been biting my lip probably throughout the the the, the testing certainly. Um, uh, post-launch sort of period is that this is seems to be the only time that a lot of people ever actually look at the cars um, and they will you know like a, an excited child see something different pointed it and go look 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 <laughs> um, and I think a lot of the things that everyone in the sort of the mainstream motorsport media have pointed at this week really isn't <laughs> that that secret that innovative or that exciting and it makes me sound like a bit of a humbug <laughs> But um, the, the McLaren uh, diffuser change, uh, I mean, it's interesting, yes. Um, it Was it secret? Well, not really. Um, and everyone that's kind of writing, well, all the other teams are going to go back to the drawing board and look at this now. They must be really surprised. It, you know, when you look at the regulations um, and you think, OK, well, we can't do that. And I'll, I'll explain a bit about what that reg change is in a moment. Um, 
you would go, okay, well, how can I get around that? How can I put some body work in the area that's been restricted? And what McLaren have come up with is pretty much a kind of a version one, two of what everybody would have done the first time they kind of started to look at the uh, changes they had to make to the cars for the new regulations. So um, I don't think it's, uh, it's definitely not a kind of a brawn double diffuser. It's just, um, you know, one of those little things that they've, found probably works with their setup and i you know people may adopt something similar or mclaren may away go from it again i don't think it is that kind of central to um competitiveness this year so what is the new diffuser regulation so no let me ask you a question okay. when it comes to diffusers <laughs> what was the regulation change this year how do you understand it do the strakes at the back have to be shorter by a certain amount of millimetres? I want to say 50 millimetres, or is it 50% shorter than they had to be? They were, that, sorry. That is absolutely accurate in terms of answering my question, uh, because that is how everybody has explained it. But the reality is the regulation change is way more complicated than that and actually doesn't even restrict the length of the strakes in the middle of the diffuser. So this is where a lot of this kind of odd reporting is coming in. A lot of people are kind of, you know, churning out the sort of the same uh, misunderstandings um, uh, without ever actually reading the regs or understanding them, which makes it sound like um, a councillor meeting. Um, so it's like, that's the headline and people aren't reading the article. <laughs> read, read the standing orders and understand them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is very much that situation. So what it is, is the... Um, as you know, underneath the floor of an F1 car, you've kind of got this stepped bottom. Um, and the, step, the bit that hangs down the bottom, the middle step where the, the plank gets attached to, uh, can be up to 50 centimetres wide. Um, and that carries on into the diffuser. And the middle of the diffuser, therefore, in the middle 50 centimetres of it, can actually have the, the fences sit much lower all the way down to the bottom of the car, which is that 50 millimetres, that 5 centimetres. Um, and when the FAA wanted to kind of knock the downforce off the cars a bit this year, they thought, well, let's limit what they can do in the middle of the diffuser because that's one of the hardest bits to get working because obviously you've got that sort of what I call the boat tail where the, you know, the stepped bottom and all of the shape of the back of the car has to kind of yeah. streamline off inside the diffuser. So what they've said is that bottom 50 centimetres, sorry, 50 millimetres, now has to be one continuous surface if you cut through it on a horizontal plane, which immediately I've probably lost everybody that's listening to this <laughs> podcast. So what it, Not basically, all. <laughs> what it basically means is that when the diffuser starts underneath the car, any bodywork has to kind of flow off of that and then can't have any brakes or serrations or slots or anything put into it. So what McLaren have basically done is carried on that line at the side of the, the diffuser and then just brought these up, and that fits in with the regulation. Um, and again, when you read the regulations, you can think, well, that's the first thing you would do. You would try and just extend the start of the diffuser all the way back towards it and then think, well, hold on, that's actually blocking the airflow, so we'll just cut them off into this sort of shape. And before you know it, you come up with McLaren's um, solution quite quickly. So I would expect that most of the other teams, as I say, have probably looked at this very early and decided, do you know what? What we would rather do is ignore that area and put our normal fences as close to it as we can get to with all of our clever sort of slots and serrations and cutouts and what have you and get it to work that way. And that's what, you know, 
nine cars on the grid have um, achieved. Um, and McLaren have just got something ever so slightly different. Um, and it swings and roundabouts. The McLaren solution does have some some benefits. You can see how it would work in terms of um, changing the, the pressure in the diffuser from the, you know, the middle section to the outer sections and how it can help airflow move into that center section. Um, but equally, it kind of blocks that airflow at the same time. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it is as exciting and as surprising for other teams as as most journalists would would have you believe. But um, of course, <laughs> that doesn't get clicks, does it? So, um, yeah, we'll we'll leave, we'll leave it to the headline writers. <laughs> right, I'll I'll stop tweeting about it then. what what is it though that would make nine teams look at those regs and and see that that option is available to them and go actually no and then for just one of the 10 teams to go actually we'll give that a go why why is there that difference of opinion every team will have um over the years built up um an understanding of how they want the airflow to work around the car that was what you would describe as their philosophy um, and when you get regulation changes, what that you will find is that when they see what they can have to do to recover from that reg change and what opportunities that reg change gives them, um, they'll follow that philosophy through. Um, so for some reason, McLaren wanted to work that middle part of the diffuser much harder. Um, and therefore, this sort of fence setup that they've got will work for them. Um, other teams um, find that the um, slightly wider spaced fences, and it's particularly with the little sort of slotted bottoms that these all, all these fences tend to have, um, will find that well that that really gives us the performance that we want. We'll just stick with that. And you know it, it's like that. It's you know when you get a, a variation in regulations, there's always someone that will favour something. You know when high noses came in, some teams still found performance with a low nose car. Um, yeah every other reg change you could ever think of slowly everyone then you know sort of converges onto one solution and i think what will happen this year because of the oddness um of these kind of one-year rules the restrictions of wind tunnel testing and the demand to focus on 2022 as early as possible i don't think many people are going to vary massively um you know and converge into one uh, one or other solution so you know i think this could actually be quite unique to mclaren um, for the year, and I'd be surprised if anyone goes too far down the road of changing their their diffuser philosophy to follow it. Well, I mean, we are, we already know that Hass isn't going to do anything with the car this year, and I think the car that we've seen this weekend just gone is the car that we'll still be seeing at the end of the year with no changes in. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, the Haas situation is the the one of the curious, most curious things I think I've seen in Formula One for for many years. Um, you know, even when, when you think back to sort of Super Aguri, you know, resurrecting that old Arrow chassis, you know, they really worked on it. Um, and Haas have just sort of said, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they, you know, they've made a few small changes to it. You know, they've, they've modified the diffuser. They've put a cape under the nose and changed the Ming pylons, a bit of work around the barge boards. I mean, that really isn't a lot of work. Um, um, over the, the, you know, the winter, when you think that, all the resources they had um, because of the, you know, the reg changes where they don't have to make a new chassis. In fact, they almost cannot make a new chassis without spending tokens. And all the other bits are going to either be the same or coming from Ferrari again. You know, what, what have they done with, with their uh, money and their resources over the winter? Um, because they couldn't start 2022 development until the start of this year. So it's, um, 
it's it's odd and um you know it's it's rather sad really because um you know i think pass have had a a tough few years and you would like to see them you know kind of make some progress but you know this this attitude that they've had this year is um um unfathomable really um you would hope that they would have you know some cash in the bank and some optimism to do some stuff um but they they just haven't so you know in theory you know they could start the year ahead of williams i mean if we think if we accept that williams were perhaps the slowest team last year but um yeah you know haas you know really they've got you know no, no, no tokens no upgrades it's like there's no hope is there um uh, you'd have to hope that they're really going to pull something out of the bag for 2022 because, you know, as, as we've spoken many times on the show, so I think Gene Haas has, you know, definitely got a finite um, limit to how much he wants to invest in Formula One without success. Which which is why I think this is all part of, he's not bothered spending any money because he knows that by the end of the year, um, the Mazepin family will have bought the team from him. Possibly. I mean, it's a very risky approach, uh, trying to sell, um, you know, a, a lame duck to, um, here, you know, a, an oligarch, but, um, unless they've yeah. already come to terms, but again, equally, it's like, it's, you know, that you know, if someone wants to buy a team, they, they must have ambition. Um, I just wonder this, this well, is, this I... has just come to me now. It can't be a Russian team until next year when the, uh, WADA ban finishes. So it's uh, it stays as Haas this year, then it becomes Euralchem or Euralkali or Mazepin Racing, racing under the Russian flag when the Russian flag's allowed in sport again. Yeah, but again, why would you throw away a, a year of you know gathering data and development? Albeit the regs are changing, but still, it's you know, you've you've um, you've got to you know you, you've got to keep trying. You can't have people just sort of sitting sitting back for the year, um, and I don't think there's a lot of time to be gained by purely setup development through the year uh, in a year like this when everyone else has made changes i think you yeah, obviously pass will add t- lap time to the car by you know understanding it and getting it to work slightly better just by playing around with it but you know in a year like this year and with um yeah the performance last year again it, again it, it kind of defies understanding really they, as you say there could be some deeper long-term game plan in here but it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. I think there'd be a very sad way for Haas to leave F1 if it was, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to quit this year. We're selling the team, but because we really just couldn't be bothered this year, you know, why turn up? Yeah, it's the yeah. reverse of what Honda have done with Red Bull's engine, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Oh. They're going out with a shout, aren't they? And yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> it seems to be working so far. Somebody else want to say something? <laughs> Um, is there anything to gain for uh, for them like to be working on twenty twenty two cards now? Um, well, I mean, let's face it, everyone's going to be developing. Uh, uh, sorry, um, devoting as much development time as they can to the twenty twenty two car um, within the regulations um, and within the resources they've got. So, yes, you could say that. Um, you know, they have an opportunity to stop and really focus on the 2022 car. And certainly Haas have been hiring lots of aero people, as you can sort of see through the uh, the classified ads uh, online for um, F1 staff. But, you know, I don't think by completely throwing away this year, they would gain that much more for next year. Um, 
you know, I think what they need one of the, there's two sides to it with, with aero development. You've got the, um, you know, the big new ideas and you know, let's work out what we need to um, get these new regulations working. So that's one part of it. But that will only bear fruit if you already know that your existing wind tunnel program and the developments that you're doing at the moment in that wind tunnel are reflected on circuit. So if you're not doing ongoing development in the wind tunnel, which going back out onto the car, which they won't be, that means that if anything goes askew in the wind tunnel in terms of correlation to real life, and obviously this is, you know, the bane of every aerodynamicist's life is getting that correlation. Um, if that goes off, then all the work that they have devoted to 2022 could go in the bin because there's something that they, you know, they haven't noticed uh, wrong in the, in the numbers and they can be misled. So, you know, that there, there, there is genuine reasons for, you know, running some form of development program on the current car just so that you can run it and prove that your figures are right. Yeah, I mean, we, we see it quite a lot now, don't we? Where if, if something's going to go badly wrong for a Formula One team, it does tend to be aero correlation, doesn't it? I mean, that is one of the fundamental things, isn't it? You know, I mean, you can see Mercedes having some problems. Maybe that's related to that sort of thing. It tends to be an aero program as much as, you know, you may have you know, structural things or suspension aspects to it. Fundamentally, the car's getting its lap time from aero um, and from understanding how the tyres work. And, you know, aero is something that can go off kilter very quickly um, without you noticing it because of all these little tiny increments teams tend to bring. So, yeah, it's absolutely fundamental that they've got that understanding of the wind tunnel and, you know, that um, confidence that it's accurate. Yeah, I mean, aero and tyre issues, that looked definitely something like uh, what Mercedes were struggling from all weekend. Um, I've not seen a Mercedes performance like that in a testing session. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we've seen this quite a few times, actually, from Mercedes. I mean, I think it was, I can't it was last year or the year before. I, I haven't stopped to go back through my, my notes. But the first the first week of testing, they looked dreadful. And everyone was saying, <gasps> low, oh, it was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, everyone was saying, low-rate cars, it's the end of the road for them. Oh, you know, Mercedes are going to happen. And the second week, they, you know, absolutely blitzed it. And then when we came to, uh, well, it wasn't Melbourne, was it? Um, you know, they just strode away from everyone exactly as they do every year. So I don't think you can get jump the gun too quickly with a bad testing performance from Mercedes. Um, I think we could try and unpick the various things that were going on there for them. Uh, definitely. Um, you know, uh, we're not quite sure where they've spent their tokens at the moment. So there was talk that they were running a new gearbox and that's what failed. Um, now, have they spent their development uh, tokens on the the what they call the gear gear carrier which is the carbon case at the back of the car that holds everything together and then the gearbox which is the, the cassette that then slots into that um and they haven't said because if you remember during the launch when they were talking about their tokens it was very much a kind of a oh you'll see when we've spent our tokens as though to say it was going to be something in your face and certainly whatever they may have done around the back of the car doesn't smack of you know, a big in-your-face um, development. So not quite sure what gearbox they're running. There was reliability problems with it, um, and they did go back to a slightly older spec, but whether that was a very much a from a 2021 spec to a 2020 spec, yeah, it's a bit less than clear. And, um, you know, 
I'm hearing different stories from different people about that. Um, it, it was the lack of running that got me for Mercedes. Like, even, I know they, I know they pretty much missed the first day, mm. but but then even after the first day when they when they started to get some laps on the board, they they weren't putting in what the other teams were putting in. No, they weren't, and this is quite unusual from from Mercedes, who you know I've and I've sort of testing most years. You know, sort of day one. Uh, stint one, they'll go out and do a 10 lap run. Everyone else has done an installation run and seems, you know, uh, stint simulations. Um, yeah, I think they did lose a lot of time. Um, I think there is, they, they were certainly not pushing that car as hard as they could. Uh, you could tell that just from the onboards that, you know, they again, it's been suggested to me that this is again down to concerns around the gearbox. Um, but equally, we know they had problems with the MG UK last year, which they say they've cured. Um, and, uh, you know, Bahrain is, is a hot venue. So if you're going to have, you know, heat rate problems or uh, overheating issues, it's going to be there. And then we had this kind of this, you know, they lost a lot of track time from, you know, spins, um, you know, obviously taking them off into the gravel traps and equally, you know, upsetting and wrecking sets of tyres. And, you know, they said they're not quite sure where this instability comes from. It seems to be something in the aero that affects the rear end, which means it could be anything upstream uh, on that car. Um, sure reminded uh, me of. It reminded me of uh, Williams's aero stall and that they had. Well, yeah, and it probably is something exactly like this. Um, and this really is when you can now start to decide whether you want to create a conspiracy theory or introduce other people's conspiracy theories. I mean, uh, show me show me the lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the car was designed by lizards this year. Uh, but, I mean, James, James Allison's been keeping very quiet about it, but, well, he's one of them anyway. Um, no, it's, um, he, he is very tall. <laughs> yes, yes. And you've never seen him eat, have you? <laughs> And I'm sure I saw him lick his eyelid once. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there's there, I mean, there's there's two schools of thought. One is that they have a serious problem with the car um, and they weren't able to sort it out and now they're in all sorts of trouble. Um, there's another theory is that where well, they didn't have a shakedown, so all of these issues really kind of hurt them at the beginning of testing. You've only got three days um, and, you know, that's just the way it, it is. Um, and then the other one is that well they've got a, um, a filming day this week, um, and this then starts to you know the, the conspiracy theory starts to mount is that well they haven't said what their tokens are, they're testing this week they don't seem unduly worried they seem very open that they've got a problem and you know <laughs> it's out there we don't understand it um, have they got a big upgrade to the car coming on to it in dur during that uh, filming day uh, and that will be showing us where they've spent their tokens. Um, and yeah, that for me, actually, that theory holds lots of water because we know Mercedes will often bring big upgrade, um, either late in testing or very early in the season. And we know that they tend to bring these upgrades and run them from day one with very little problem. So, um, yeah, stop it, I mean, Craig. You destroyed, yeah, I it. You destroyed my <laughs> dreams. <laughs> so, um, now, it's one of these things. Now that that was the uh, that was the conspiracy theory that um, that I heard last night from uh, from someone. So yeah, you could be onto something there. Well, again, you know, we, we do, the fact of the matter is we just don't know, and I, you know, I, none of us can sit here and say categorically, you know, 
are they in trouble for the whole season? Are they just in problem in the, during testing? Are they going to have a big upgrade? I think one thing we can be clear about is that no matter what the problem may be, and if it's not even part of some of those conspiracy theories, Mercedes have got the ability to fix that problem really rapidly. Um, and, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be massively concerned um, if you're a Mercedes fan uh, or indeed one of their, their drivers fans, um, that this you know spells the end of you know their period of success, which is rather unfortunate because it means <laughs> everybody else who wants to see a competitive season does that mean that you know another championship for Mercedes? Yeah, I, I think we've got we've got some some hope and some optimism there that it could be a more competitive season at the front than that. But you know, don't underestimate the power of Mercedes. You know. They will, they will fight back. And, you know, we look at, you know, the Diva car from a few years ago. You know, it still won the championship hands down, um, despite being a difficult car. Um, and, you know, I, I think both those drivers would be in a position to, um, to cope with even a, you know, a slight, slightly difficult car to drive. How much do the tyres come into this as well? Because don't the tyres weigh a little more than that? Well, I think again, the tyres are um, a, you know a key factor for everybody. So the cars this year, I think, are about six kilograms heavier, and of that, about two and a half, three kilograms, depending on who you ask and when you ask them, uh, comes from the tyres. And this is to make the tyres physically stronger to cope with the high cornering loads. Which obviously, if you think back to you know Hamilton finishing the Silverstone Grand Prix on three tyres, uh, one kind of mushy mess on the uh, the front there. Uh, Pirelli have had to cope with, you know, the increase in performance from these, and yeah, that just adds weight. Um, the downside is that the teams really didn't get much chance to test these at the end of last season. They've had very little chance to test them, obviously, this week. And, you know, when you change tyre construction, then you also change, you know, things like the spring rate, how the tyres flex and how that affects the aerodynamics around the rear of the car in particular. So, you know, it could just be Mercedes dialing in the chassis to these tyres. Um, and again, you know, that is just the work of setup and a bit of diligence and a bit of understanding exactly what's going on. So yeah, it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of people to contend with, you know, Mercedes seem to be hit by this probably most of all. Uh, and again, you can then start to go to, you know, the, the other conspiracy theories that it's, again, it's the low rate cars, it's the high rate cars, you know, um, at the beginning of uh, the winter, everyone said that the high rate cars would struggle with these regulations. And, um, you know, I didn't think that would be the case. I think it's much more 50-50 between the reg changes affecting high and low rake than um, it simply being a one-sided affair. Um, but, you know, it's it's just difficult for the teams with just so little testing uh, and yeah, a new set of tyres thrown in there along with everything else. I think it's interesting where Austin Martin are, though, because they, they're nowhere, or they seem to be nowhere anyway, and you, you talk about a car which was probably the, regardless of where they were in the championship, probably the third best car on, on the grid yet last year. And it, it just doesn't seem to have transferred over. Yeah, I mean, again, it was very hard to judge them um, through testing, um, which, you know, <laughs> does make life a little bit difficult. When, when you look at the car and how um, it looked compared with last year's car and for, again, for everyone that you know loves to shout about, oh, it's a Mercedes copy. It's you know, it, it, it's it's a lot more independent than that, mm. um, and it's you know it's very easy to kind of point fingers at a couple of little details. But you know, 
the car looks like it should be better than than it performed on track. Um, again, they had some problems which set them back very early. Again, gearbox, I seem to recall, if if I'm correct. Um, but they've took Mercedes yeah, it was yeah, gearbox, haven't they? Yeah, and um, yeah, it's you know it's very hard to judge. Uh, I've never thought that the you know the, the Force India Racing Point team have ever been a team that have come out particularly strongly out of the blocks in any season, to be honest. Uh, and they're always a team that tend to, you know, come along through the year um, with, you know, subtle development, with good race strategy and setup. And I think, you know, that is very much the way they operate. And I think as much as it's, you know, the name over the door has changed and um, uh, you get this uh, <laughs> uh, stroll who's now looking like a, a VJ Malia, uh, <laughs> which is rather worrying uh, quite what was going what was going on there during the launch. Um, and then again, you know, you've got, you know, Vettel's trying to settle himself in. Stroll, again, is a, a difficult driver to, to kind of judge and to, to predict where he's at. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you just have to say that the jury's out on, on Aston Martin. Um, you know, my, I was kind of hoping that, you know, the big injection of cash would, you know, um, see itself into, um, you know, a, an obvious step change in their performance. And we haven't seen that yet. Um, and again, people I've been chatting to in the industry and, uh, you know, potentially within the walls of the Silverstone factory, although I can't name names, um, will, um, sort of say, well, you know, that th there hasn't been that massive step change in investment. You know, they're starting to, um, redevelop the factory now. Um, and if you think that is very much the old Jordan factory and is really needed to have been expanded and developed for many years. Um, so I don't think. I don't think we're necessarily seeing the fruits of the, you know, the Aston Martin investment just yet. Um, and hopefully they'll leave it down to, you know, most of the existing engineering and race team to uh, get the results for them this year. But uh, yeah, it's it, a tricky one to predict, I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. I was surprised to see them so far down. You know, they, I mean, they were last, when they were last and second to last. Well, I mean, sun Sunday they barely got any running just because the car was um, in the garage with the with the floor off and the um, the barriers in front of it more than it wasn't. Yeah, which was good because we did get some photos of the engine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's always a silver lining. We know what's it, causing the business now. <laughs> it did give uh, it did give Vettel um, a chance to use like probably his greatest skill at the moment, which is making the best of a bad situation in interviews. I, I must have missed that one. <laughs> Ted Kravitz approaching him with some cheese, which yeah. I have not listened to the the, the 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 full transcript, but I was just wondering what the hell's going on there. It was a bit Alan Partridge, I've got to be honest. Yeah, that was that was the feeling, yes. <laughs> um, since yeah. we've done two of the uh, Mercedes powered teams, we might as well stay on um, stay on that subject with uh, with McLaren next. The uh, the the second debut of the McLaren Mercedes. Yeah, they're back, aren't they? Mm. Um, it's um, fun if I was looking at a Mercedes, uh, a McLaren Mercedes today uh, in one of my uh, other jobs. Um, I mean, they're looking very good, aren't they? I mean, I think this they're they're building up to a bit of a crescendo, McLaren. You know, for, for quite a few years over the years that we've been talking, it's been very much like, God, when are they going to pull their finger out? And then last year, it's yeah. like. Well, actually, that's quite good. Um, and this year, um, 
Well, I mean, it's hard to find any chinks in their armor at the moment. I mean, you, they've got the Mercedes power unit, which we know is fantastic, uh, has been historically. They've got their own gearbox, which potentially is a good thing because there may be some question marks over the McLaren gearbox. And it means that they can have their own rear suspension set up and, you know, they understand it. The aero has been working increasingly well um, over the past couple of years. And then they've got this driver pairing. Um you know, are they going to be the third team this year? Are they, you know, even going to be challenging the, you know, the the, the Red Bulls and the the Mercedes? Um, I think that, that that there is that potential there. Um, I think we did see some of it through testing. Um, again, don't want to read too much into sort of lap times and everything, but uh, you know, I mean, everything is just kind of looking good for them, isn't it? It's um, it's uh, it, it certainly makes the season look a bit more interesting, and then makes that kind of midfield pack. Um, who appear to be kind of following very much on sort of McLaren's coattails in terms of performance, um, is you know shaping up to be a really exciting year. Um, McLaren are my one where if you've got a scruffy fiver in your pocket, which you need to get rid of, I don't think it's a stupid bet to stick them on for constructors champions. Because if you look at the other teams like Red Bull, let's let's say Perez doesn't perform. And we have another Albon situation because he can't adapt to Max's car. And Mercedes are in a bit of bother. And then later on in the season, um, that we ha- Hamilton's going to have all the contract negotiation questions and all that sort of stuff is going to bubble up. And if you've got two people, which I think in that car are going to be two point-scoring machines, I don't, mm. I don't think it's daft. No, I mean, yeah, I think that would be, you know, I don't, I don't condone betting, but um, yeah, I mean, that would be a great bet, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to know what the odds on that would be, but yeah. Uh, it's 66 to 1. 66, there you go. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think McLaren could be that team that are there to pick up the points, the podiums, wins, and as you say, potentially even a championship if uh, you know, those, the, the, the top two favourites do fall by the wayside. They're certainly looking, you know, um, in the right position for that. And, um, yeah, uh, let's fingers crossed they do, because I think, you know, I think they, they deserve the, you know, the, the success that, that their hard work and diligence over these past few years has, has kind of put in. And, um, yeah, and that driver pair is, you know, is, is pretty exciting. I mean, I think both from a, an on-track performance, but probably potentially also their social media feeds is going to produce some fantastic little uh, memes and videos uh, this year as well. <laughs> and it will be another complete kick in the trousers for Alonso, who comes back to F1 after walking away because he drove a bad McLaren when they have their best car in years. To be fair, <laughs> he did walk away a while ago. <laughs> And and then yeah. they did they did send him to Indy without a steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think Alonso's return. I mean, again, it's um, you know these the, these drivers have got such ambition and such drive. I just don't know if that is necessarily. Um, I got to say, I didn't really pick up on Alonso's performances during testing. I mean, I was spent a lot more time looking at the the, the still images than the the, the lap times and the uh, the the videos. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's 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 a big big ask for him to come back and everything to kind of come together at Alpine together at once. Um, and um, I, I sense there could be some frustration there 
on all sides. So yeah, that could be that could be a fairly fiery situation to uh, to look at this year, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, what could take... be? What you take on the airbox? Or like, it's like it's like they got two of them. <laughs> well, um, I I I made a um, a remark on Twitter. Someone was saying, well, you know, Mercedes are going to run the LEDs under the car, and uh, I think that Alpine have got a subwoofer. <laughs> the car. And they're just going to sit there in the pit lane on Sunday nights, just thumping out with the lights flashing and everything. Um, <laughs> you could be right. Maybe it's a speaker so Alonso can give direct instructions to the pit lane of what they should be doing. I can't remember who it was. I can't remember if it was Crofty or um, uh, or Brundle during the commentary of the, uh, the the testing, where they were talking about whoever's going to be like like team principal role. And one of them turned around and said, well, they need to be happy of strong character. Otherwise, Alonso is going to find himself as team principal if he isn't already. Yeah, that was Martin Brundle said that. I heard that. Yes, that sounds, yeah, that does sound about right. But the, the, the airbox thing is quite interesting because we saw the uh, Renault, Lotus, Alpine, whatever, they're, you know, the Endstone team. Um, they've always historically produced quite inaccurate launch renders and launch cars um so when the 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 engine cover looked a lot bigger in the the launch renders it was like well you know they've run a very big engine cover now for uh two two or three years i think it has been now um and this is all part of a kind of what we call a center line cooling concept where you effectively make the the roll hoop and the engine cover a third side pod to allow those side pods to be narrow which should has obvious aero benefits and throughout that you know, this period um you know, the the engineers at endstone have said well it looks like it you know it's a big bulky airbox and you know engine cover and that would upset the rear wing and you know create lots of drag but we find that it just doesn't and you know you have to accept that that you know, that's what their wind tunnel figures are telling them that's what they're basing it on so when you see it suddenly get so much bigger this year um it was i mean it is rather striking isn't it i mean i actually saw um uh, a rear end shot of it today uh, from a slightly odd angle and it just looked massive it just looks wrong like uh, everyone's taking that picture of the you know the first Ligier with its huge air box as a, as a comparison oh the, uh, uh, yeah. the the flying teapot the flying teapot yes um i mean theoretically it all works um, you know, their side pods are significantly narrower, particularly down at floor level, which with the floor ch- regulation changes that you've got this year are, you know, uh, as just as important uh, as ever. Um, uh, other teams haven't followed that. And again, it's a kind of it's a bit of a philosophy thing, um, whether they carry that on into 2022. I-, I would probably doubt because, you know, everything changes again. It's just a t- chance for a bit of a clean sheet. But um yeah, it's um, it's just one of those big odd visual things, um, and uh, even then, you know, there's been lots of talk about what's underneath it. So we know that there's a, you know, some kind of radiator under there, uh, and that changed after the second day of testing. They went to a much uh, smaller or lower engine cover. It still had the same width, which is confusing. Um, and again, there's lots of uh, rumours around Renault's power unit. Now we know that there were um, pictures from Alonso's visit to uh, Viri their um, engine development area in um, Paris. And there was what looked like a split turbo engine on the dyno. Um, have they introduced that for this year? Um, did they try running it on one of those days of testing or were they just trying to see 
how big a cooling package they needed, which doesn't sound right. You know, these teams are very good at predicting this stuff. So it's a bit odd. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to see exactly what is under there and you know the layout of the engine and what they've done. But, um, you know, again, a big visual thing. And, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure if, if Alpine have done enough this year to kind of really step up. Um, yeah, we saw some good. We saw some good performances from them, sort of during testing, didn't we? You know, they yeah. certainly not disappointing. Um, but again, as always with um, you know the, the, the parent companies, in, it, Renault's investment into the team. And, you know, are they really pushing? And I think you know, I think we have seen maybe more commitment and more adventurism from from the team this year. Um, I'm just hoping that, that that is matched with competitiveness on the track. Yeah, they don't seem to have made the same step forward that McLaren has, do they? So the, if they haven't made a, at least the same step forward, you'd think, well, they're going to be in the same position they were in. Or if Alpha Tauri hasn't uh, usurped them, uh, and but McLaren might be just a bit further down the road from them than they were last year. Well, exactly. I mean, they were you know, still fighting... Um chassis problems aero problems last year so they have to kind of overcome them as well as you say you know pick up that that potential gap to mclaren you don't get that you're not at the moment you're not getting that warm fuzzy feeling that they you know they they are in that position where they will be right on mclaren's tails and as you say it's, it's going to be a complicated situation you've got alonso who you know can be a fantastic race driver um can certainly you know put a qualifying lap together and a first lap together um ocon you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. While I'm, I'm no judge of drivers. I, you know, I have to admit that I've, I, I've not been hugely impressed by by Arcon um, through his career. But you know, people seem to kind of root for him in terms of his performance. So, um, you know, that, it doesn't feel like they've got the complete package to really kind of deliver in some respects this year. Um, you know, from a driver and a chassis um, perspective. So. You know, they, they could have a real fight on their hands, fighting off, as you say, the Alpha Tower eyes, um, uh, being kind of one of them, um, as well as, you know, um, you know, they've got the potential to be beating Ferrari, because uh, I think, you know, they're very much a team going backwards again. But, um, yeah, again, but I suppose that all makes for a, a pretty exciting um, season for us, doesn't it? Uh, um, Alpha Tauri, because they looked ace, and um, I mean, Tsunoda was put the second fastest time in, I think, didn't he, of the whole test? But mm. they, they've historically been a team that's run light, haven't they? You know, there's been a few years where we've thought, oh, like Toro Rosso might have a good car, or last year mm. Alpha Tauri looked exceptionally good, and then all of a sudden they're back sort of mid, mid pack again. Yeah, and again, if I think if you if you look at their performance last year, I think they, you know, they that was we had lots of optimism. Obviously, they got a race win. I mean, you can't you can't, yeah. you can't argue with that. But um, you go on on sheer performance, sheer pace. Um, it was very hard to predict quite where where they were. Um, I don't think it was the fastest car outright, um, but it was a very um, I think it was probably the key thing. It looked after its tires and the drivers with their um, you know, uh, performance and pace and overtaking uh, and everything else kind of work for them. Uh, certainly, Noda's um, fastest laps were aided by a, 
an, an odd DRS strategy which would have given him some advantage, whether that accounts for it or not. But, I uh, saw saw that. Was he opening this DRS in places where he shouldn't have been open, or before the, it's the activation point? It, it wasn't. He wasn't using the uh, race activation points. He was activating it right. as soon as he could out of out of corners. Um, again, I don't know what that would contribute to lap time, but certainly when you look at the uh, the Alpha. Uh, Tarai um, chassis. Um, when you know all the bits that they've got coming from Red Bull, when you know that you've got that Honda engine in there, which is looking quite impressive as a, a step from last year, the, um, uh, being in the back of that car. Now, there's lots in that package which are, you know, really shaping up to to look like a, a, a very useful race car. Um, and again, if they haven't inherited the instability from last year's red bull by taking the parts that they have and certainly testing does doesn't give you that feeling i don't think you would have got noda performing at that level if it was a car as unstable as last year's red bull um yeah they again they are looking very strong um and you just hope that you know you, you have to take their testing performance with a pinch of salt as you say because it's something historically they've always got played about with but you know again there's lots to be quite optimistic about about that package um and you know gasly is maturing into a a, a very good driver as you know as we saw last year um yeah, i i don't know I, I don't tend to follow the racing in in f2 so i don't really know where, where noda's at but um you know he certainly looks fairly exciting from what we saw during testing so you know overall um, you know, could this be a, a year where they really are kind of, you know, towards the front of the midfield rather than that kind of where they normally are kind of bouncing between good weekends, bad weekends and just mediocre? Does that I think, to do with the Honda engine, do you think? I think the Honda engine certainly is helping. Um, they've, you know, yeah, where they've done a lot of work over the, the winter um, in developing that engine. I think they realise that you know, uh, their time's coming to an end this year. Is there be the last year that it's badged as a Honda? And I think they want some recognition for that. And, um, you know, we, we all know what Honda can be like when they really put the effort in, uh, in a properly directed fashion. Um, and they've done that in the past and they appear to be doing that now. And I think certainly the Red Bull relationship with Honda really has improved and shaped that power unit in a way that it never did under the McLaren management um and then when they hand that power unit or certainly the 2022 power unit over to uh red bull and their uh new engine development uh sort of business yeah it, it looks good for them it looks like they have kind of closed that gap back to um uh mercedes and uh, you know that's quite a tantalizing prospect because as much as i don't think rebel have necessarily had the best chassis in uh f1 for uh, quite a few years they certainly have been hampered by the the power unit so, um, you know, I think it's time that, you know, the uh, the talking stops um, from Red Bull and they've got an engine there where, um, you know, it will expose their chassis for however it's working. I have often wondered that about um, Red Bull and the Adrian Newey tie up where, you know, I mean, it happens to everyone, doesn't it? Regardless of what you do, whether you're um, involved in the technical side or the or, or you're a driver, you know, there the comes a point where. I, I don't know if run out of, run out of ideas is the right thing, or you just get overtaken by other people around you. you know, like, mm. I think you know, James Allison is like clearly one of like a, a future Adrian Newey type um, person. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just makes you wonder wonder whether, with like you say, with Red Bull not having the best chassis for a, lot of, a couple of years, will, will this like the new regulations? You know, we're so used to uh, an Adrian Newey car on change change of regulations coming out and being something special, and it just makes you wonder whether if if he doesn't do it, where does Red Bull go from there? If if they've relied on him so much so far. Yeah, I mean, I think that you make a, a, a good point, and as it, you know, it's a very much a valid point. Every designer kind of comes to the end of their career, um, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, as you say, whether they run out of ideas or they just don't change with the times. I think one of the issues with the the newy Red Bull setup is that um, Newey, I think, is someone that is very much lays the car out and looks for that sort of big idea that um if not necessarily innovation certainly a reinvention of some other idea that will work um and historically that is what has kind of kept red bulls by being you know a slightly different design um and has kept them ahead of the pack when they have been competitive um you know and i think as the regulations have changed over recent years i don't think we've seen that kind of big idea that big layout change that big reinvention that newey likes to bring to the car uh, evident and that then starts to expose the weaknesses in that, you know, we have a guy that draws the car, then everyone else then go and does the kind of the, the minions do the uh, the detail work. And that sounds very like I'm denigrating the engineers at Red Bull, and please don't believe that's what I'm saying. But the way the way that the workflow works there is... I heard you. I heard you call them umpalumpers. <laughs> but I think... Um, you know, and again, you know, clearly it's it's a bit more three dimensional than the way I lay it out there. But um, I think that is a bit restrictive, and I think it it, it does need to be. Uh, you know, maybe they do need to move towards the more modern, you know, way that you have just a massive team of aero people working in a very flat structure. You know, in lots of places, because now these cars are becoming so complicated with the aero that it needs lots of ideas in lots of areas to really you know, get all of the performance out of the car rather than trying to rely on a kind of a, you know, a key thing that, you know, you can point to. Is that and point think, common yeah, across the um, the grid, though? Do other teams go about it that way? I, I, I There is not um, another team that I know of where you would have someone that really does kind of set the car out um Again, I'm, I'm, I'm using very broad terms here and simplifying things by themselves. And then, you know, it then goes out to the rest of the, you know, the aero people and the design office. Um, it, everywhere else, it is very much um, a broad um, setup where everyone is involved. And, uh, you know, the technical directors and, the, you know, the senior management, then they're, they're not even drawing, you know, they're not even um, com- necessarily coming up with ideas or directions. They are getting the, all the other people the you know the 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 uh the oompa loompas as, as you describe <laughs> <laughs> which is another one of formula one secrets um um uh, do, you know th- th- that's where all the ideas come from it's all those little sub aero groups that will work on you know an aspect of the barge boards or an aspect you know and you know cars get quicker not necessarily from big ideas but from you know dozens if not hundreds of little ones and um you know i i i i think maybe red bull may 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 uh 
certainly in fans eyes over rely on the kind of the newbie effect um and the way that the regulations and you know newbie's being quite vocal and he, you know he's, he's frustrated with the way the regulations are and they, i don't imagine 2022 is um making him uh, any happier either with the way the regulations are worded for that either but um yeah uh, i i think there is um a, a bit of a, a change um and i think there has been a change obviously i think now that the named technical director at, um red bull is uh, pierre isn't it it's not it's not adrian has got you know some even more senior title but um yeah yeah i think i think that does that that i think that will um will change naturally as um newby really does step back from that role and i, I think you know every year um i think he probably tries to do it but you know finds it hard to drag himself away i imagine <laughs> One thing I did notice about the uh, about the Red Bull over the weekend was that it just seemed to me that that had the highest rake of all ten cars. I mean, it looked like <laughs> it looked like it was going downhill when it was going uphill. Yeah, that's a strange thing with the, you know the Red Bull in particular. You can stand behind it in the pit lane, you can see underneath the car, and it 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 really messes with your head. And it's like, no, that, that, that's not how perspective works. How can I see? Underneath of a car. Yeah, they, I th- it, you've got to be very careful when you look at rake, particularly when the cars are at a standstill. I know there were quite a few pictures. I think there was some of their, uh, was it Hamilton looking behind it or someone? Mm. Uh, and the car was, you know, literally, you know, almost looked like it was a foot off the ground. Um, but it's equally, not if you under had, load. Is that, yeah, is that if you then looked at that car at the end of the straight, it would actually look like it's pointing nose upwards, um, and uh, it's all way the way that the suspension and what they call the collapsible uh, heave damper works on these F1 cars, um, that everything just you know all the rake just disappears at a certain speed. Um, yeah, I mean they certainly are you know remain the you know, the people with the with the highest static rake, um, and certainly at sort of you know low to medium speeds keep the most rake on board. Um, and I mean, it, it works for them. Uh, you know, that car was looking really good. It seems to have lost the rear end imbalance that it had last year, which again, everyone blamed on high rake, um, and said, Oh no, they have to change their philosophy. Um, just like they said with Mercedes at the beginning of last year. Um, and you know, the rear end of that car seems to be working despite, you know, the rake. And I think we can be sure of that because Checo was so comfortable in that car, um during testing as well um which obviously is a, a great pity for for albon which you know had his year with the you know a bit of a diva um and checo goes into a car that is you know much more benign and probably suits his driving much more um than than the, the uh, 2020 car would have i can't help think they should have stuck with albon now now thinking about it and looking at this car this year <laughs> I mean, again, Lee, it... you were the you were the biggest <laughs> critic of Alex. No, I know. You I, know. I wish you all could have seen my eyebrows during that. Comment. No, no, no. I'm ceiling I'm sat next to you, and I couldn't see your eyebrows. It's only because I was th- I was thinking about it while I was watching testing, and I thought I was thinking about the how good album was in his first year when he went from Toro Rosso to Red Bull, um, and then you thought, well, what are they going to do? next year now you know it's are they going to keep is is perez in for the long haul i can't see them taking gasly back because it's not really the way red bull works they've got nobody nobody else i can't see sonoda going up into into red bull immediately um yeah it's it, it just it, the the interim perez seem now doesn't makes less sense to me 
now that they seem to have built a a more drivable car. Mm. I'm gonna have yeah, to go back. Through, I'm gonna have to go back through the archives and do a great, Lee's greatest hits on Alban. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, I always said I wanted him to do well. He just wasn't doing. <laughs> I've completely lost my thread now. Shall we talk about Williams instead, then? <laughs> oh, I forgot about Williams when we were doing all the Mercedes cars. Yes, we we kind of we, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we kind of we kind of skipped over. Sorry, sorry, but, just, sorry just Williams. Quickly, in case people don't people don't know, the um, before before we we move on from anything red bully, I think Sonoda is going to be ace. I think he's going to be really good. I like he Sonoda. Looks really good. And um, he started racing in 2017. Yeah, he was he was Japanese F4 champion two years ago yeah to put this in perspective i have a three and a half year old son get him in the car get him in the car now but but he's like he's he's pretty good at speaking now i can have like basic conversations with him (laughs) we're in the same space of time it took me to get a baby to walk and have a basic conversation with me that guy's become a formula one driver (laughs) (laughs) seriously soon as soon as we're out of lockdown in a car he'll be there in a couple of years Come on, your house, your house backs onto a cart track. It does, it does. <laughs> it does, yeah, it does. So, do, you want, do you want to talk about Williams then before we go on to Ferrari and Alpha? Because yes. they're kind of connected, aren't they? Have we lost Craig? I'm just, I'm just checking. Yes, I think we have. We're having one of our technical, technical issues again. I'm going to hit pause. Right, we are we are now back. Uh, think of it as one of these um, instant jump cuts. The joys of recording over Skype. <laughs> Always. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, gonna talk about Williams, and that car does look a lot better than um, than the last two years worth from what we from what we've seen. I mean, again, okay, we've only got three three days of. Uh, Three days of viewing, but it looks a lot more stable, a lot more planted, and quite a bit quicker. Yes, it's um, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, when you look at it on paper, Williams have only spent one token, which they spent through last year anyway. Um, and again, looking at the car, uh, it's, yeah, it's clearly very much a B version. Uh, I'm probably even, not even quite a B, it's sort of an, an AA rather than a, uh, a, a B version of last year's car. But... You know, again, it's a, a little bit like Haas. You can add time to a car simply by just w- working hard enough on it. And it seems to have paid off so far. And, yeah, it did look good. Um, but the colour scheme, thank God, looks damn sight better than it did on the um, the hacked um, renders that were, uh, were... Yeah, it does. Uh, it, it seems a lot calmer. Um, and, yeah, so, again, you know, maybe... Maybe Williams have um, have got a bit of stability there, and uh, I've got something that they can start to build upon. Um, you know, when you've got um, you know uh, the change in management that we're seeing there now um, with Capito, you know, who's obviously is a very good pair of hands at a very high level in a team that really does need someone filling that void um, from Frank and Claire and Patrick. Um, going onwards so yeah so things do look slightly better again you've got you know um, the last year of their own gearbox um, which you know has helped them with track time uh, we know that the Merck engine is going to be good and um, yeah maybe things are, are starting to sort of pay off there um, how much they can 
hold their own through the year against the rest of the midfield, I think is going to be the, the challenge. How soon do Williams switch off um, and focus on 2022, which would be quite early, uh, I would imagine. I don't know if they've actually sort of said anything to that effect. Yeah, they have uh, said they're going to bring updates, aero updates um, during the year. But uh, yeah, as you say, you can only assume they're going to stop work on that car quite quite well, early on. There's a limit to you know to what they can do there. Um, and you know, while I think you know Haas could be easy pickings for them by by the looks of things, um, then you know, are they going to sort of catch up to everyone else through the year? Possibly not, but. Um, Certainly, if they can be have those races where they do come good and can be, you know, you know, we know that Russell can obviously put in some fantastic qualifying runs, um, and um, yeah, can we have some races where we can kind of enjoy Williams kind of looking like the uh, the business again? I can't help think that maybe their car philosophy is banking on uh, some like spectacular stuff from Russell when it comes to uh, qualifying because. I think it was Perez that was saying where, when he was following the Williams, it was the hardest car to follow when he was behind because of the air coming off it. So yeah, I think uh, maybe maybe they might be thinking of sticking sticking <laughs> Russell in the top ten and then holding the holding the field up for the rest of the race <laughs> in a kind of a dick dastardly um, wacky races. Yeah, he's got to grow a little moustache, isn't he? <laughs> um, if, if he can, um, yeah. Um, yeah, it was an interesting comment by Perez, and I was trying to work out if that was a good or a bad thing, because obviously, you know, in some respects, from an, as an aeromacist, you want the air to be leaving the car as um, cleanly as possible, but equally, um, you want to use every ounce of the energy that's in the air passing through the car. So by the time it's, you know, gone past the the tail light, the air is, you know, completely used. So if it hits another car, it's not going to work their aero. So yeah, so it's it's um it's an odd observation, uh, and certainly, you know, depending on on circuits, if 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 Russell can get up there, he could be a bit of a stopper in the middle of the midfield. And whether that's good or bad, you know, I'm, I don't know. It's probably good for getting results for Russell. Good for so. Russell. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So look, yeah, you know, I think it's something we'll have to keep an eye on. But um, you know, I, I hope it's not a full storm for. Uh, you know, the Williams team, because, you know, we uh, we we always like to uh, see them, you know, sort of uh, performing as well as they can. And uh, hopefully this is, you know, this, the start of the, uh, the the fight back for them. I think it's more as well, because we, we've already seen what George Russell could do when he was given a Mercedes for a race. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes it even worse watching him at the back of the grid when you think, well, what could this guy be like? the next Lewis or the next Fernando, you know, it's, and he's stuck at the back of the grid in a car, soaring away at the wheel, trying to keep it in a straight line. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, there's different ways. I mean, if you, if you're a great driver and you go straight into some good teams, um, you know, some people could see that that's a you know, good for you. Um, then there's that kind of character building um, philosophy and I don't think driving a bad car and having to kind of pull out great laps in qualifying simply because that's the only way you're going to get a you know a good result or get noticed. Um, I, I, I think it's good for him honing his skills. Um, you know, it definitely is. I mean, as you say, he's made his mark. Yeah, I think he made his mark through the season, and I think the you know his stand-in drive only you know cemented that in people's minds. Um, so yeah, you know, let's. Um, 
let's hope that this will be his last year in an uncompetitive car, whether that means he goes to, you know, perhaps another Mercedes power team next year. Who knows? Or um, a reinvigorated Williams next year. Um, I I think he's uh, he's going to be able to put some good Saturdays in at least because when you look at the work that he had to put in last year, you know, to to do what he was doing in the Williams, mm. and when you saw on boards with him through testing, it just looks like it's so much easier car to drive. Mm. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think they they have certainly knocked out the um, all those edges that were on that car from last year, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you know from, from a career point of view, obviously it's important that Russell keeps that momentum in, you know, the, team, the other teams and the media's eyes that he is, you know, still the man on a Saturday and still kind of puts in this greater race performance as he possibly can because uh, we all know what it's like. I mean, it just takes, you know, someone else to come on board and be the next big Saturday driver. Uh, and Russell, you know, could be forgotten. I mean, I, I don't think that would be the case because I think clearly, you know, um, Saders have got their eye on him, um, depending on what's happening with their uh, contractual situations this year. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, it will be interesting to see um, how his driving, his maturity, you know, develops through the year. Well, he's definitely always had the maturity. Um... You know, just just from uh, just from seeing him going back to sort of F three and F two days, he's always been, he's always had an old head on young shoulders. Yes, yeah, and he's yeah. He's, he's shown it behind the wheel as well, and you know that's 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 only increasing these days. Mm. Yeah, you know, in his head, he's probably about three times older than me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Paul. All right, twice. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> Right, I guess we're going to have to move on to the absolute shit show that's been Ferrari and how they're recovering. Yeah. I want to talk. First thing I want to talk to you about on this, Craig, is the um, rather cryptic statement that uh, Mika Salo came out with about two or three weeks ago about they should do better this year now that they're allowed to put all the fuel in the car that other teams can. Was he just stirring up yeah. trouble? I, 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 there's two ways you can take his comments. Um... I, I think the, the the words or the, the words to the effect that he said was um, last year, 2020, they couldn't burn as much fuel as they used to or something like that. Um, and that can be read as two ways. One is that they were, I think the way everyone's read it is that they were given some kind of un, unwritten penalty where they had less fuel flow to race with through um, 2020. Um, and then there's the other way of putting it is that actually they had the same amount during 2020 but previously because of whatever they may or may not have been doing allegedly with the fuel flow meters uh, meant that previously they were able to flow more fuel therefore in 2020 they had less fuel it, I think it's a relative co uh, concept I think it's the latter rather than they were given some kind of um, fuel flow penalty um, uh, and, you know, with a difficult year, it was hard for them to recover their, their, their power unit performance without a big change. And obviously there's been lots of um, stuff written, particularly in the Italian press, about what they've done over the winter. None of which makes technical sense when you, you read it out loud. Um, Sounds plausible uh, for Ferrari could... then. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah they're, they're using technical terms which which no one understands, or saying things that they would be doing, which every team would be doing anyway, as though they would never have thought of improving, you know, the airflow through the inlet valve. I mean, it's like <laughs> no one's done that ever before in Formula One, but Ferrari have done loads of it this year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think certainly their power unit seems to be an improvement, and that is coming very much more from comments from uh, Alfa Romeo Sauber um, and Haas that the engine is improved. Obviously, the Ferrari drivers are going to say and Ferrari themselves are going to say the engine's improved. You know, it simply, I mean, it had to um, because it was um, quite down on power last year. People are talking, lots of people are quoting figures. um, Through the winter, it was 20 horsepower. I saw someone quoted in the Italian press saying it's 40 horsepower now. Um, and again, I think you know, all of these predictions tend to be quite wide of the mark. There's much smaller gap between the engines than, than that kind of level of horsepower. Um, but yeah, power unit improvement, let's hope so. Uh, chassis performance, well, to be honest, when they unveiled the car, apart from what I thought was actually a rather cool looking nose um, on the Ferrari, which although it's kind of cool looking, still kind of confused me from an aerodynamic perspective is why you would do that. But um, you know, again, they've got the results of the wind tunnel, not us. Um, but it just looked like Ferrari hadn't done enough with that car over the winter. Um, it's um, looks very much the same shape-wise, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, they just you don't get a feeling that they're being aggressive. They, um, you know, we we knew, um, and they were very open about making changes to the uh, the rear end of the car, which is the you know, the gear carrier and the gearbox cassette. Um, but in changing that. You know, I can't see anything obvious at the back end that has changed as a result of that. I know that they did have some rear end instability in their car as well last year, which obviously what Sebastian really struggled with. And Leclerc has already said that that has been rectified with this change. But, well, if they were changing all of those parts, why didn't they follow Mercedes and Red Bull with this reverse suspension setup, which is an, an aerodynamic gain? Um, and yeah, they haven't. And it's like, well, well what? What, what have Ferrari done? Have they just simply knocked off the edges of the old car and, you know, reduced its drag, which was one of its key problems, that it didn't have too much aerodynamic drag for the amount of power that they have. So in theory now, if they've got a bit more power back. Um, but they, they seem to be languishing in the speed traps. Um, yeah. They didn't seem to be setting any of the timing screens on fire. Um, it was just a very kind of a mediocre car on a mediocre test. It's... Um, it is deeply concerning um, because, again, you know, I think we need to have another team with the potential of Ferrari pushing at the front of the grid. Um, I think it's great for the image of Formula One having Ferrari doing well. Um, so, yeah, so I'm a little bit confused. You know, are they holding back or are they this is just are they going through another one of these spells is so often been the case <laughs> in Ferrari. They just somehow just go into the doldrums for a few years where they're not even challenging for podiums. Um, uh, so I think we're just going to have to wait and see how it shakes out. But, you know, there isn't, I don't have a great degree of, uh, degree of uh, optimism um, or hope around uh, where, where their performance is this year. Are they, are they going for 2022, do you think? They're, they're mainly focusing on the, the regulation change rather than quick gains this year oh again you know they couldn't start on that until january so it means all of the development time 
um, last year and knowing where they were last year, and let's face it, they didn't put much new on that car through the year last year. You would have thought they would have come out with something, you know, a significant step onwards. You know, this is Ferrari. You've got to remember the level of resources that they've got when they want to throw stuff at something. You know, there, you know, there probably is only Mercedes at the moment that have really got those level of resources that really could just pull something out of the bag. And on the chassis side, I, I just don't believe they've done so. Um, so again, it's it's kind of baffling, and you know, I hope they're not going to be relying on the the two drivers <laughs> to uh, you know to be the sole improvement this year because um, I, I feel there could be quite a bit of needle. Um, uh, between these two drivers for all the talk that they're saying oh this is going to be so much better than last year i i i i feel that you know um leclerc is um a little bit rattled by you know the the amount that everyone's kind of gushing about carlos going to the team um and in a mediocre car with two let's be honest two very good drivers um could be getting an equal amount out of it and could end up being on the same part of the racetrack through you know, qualifying on the grid and through the race. Uh, and it could, you know, really could kind of compromise their Constructors' Championship uh, points if they are kind of getting under, underneath each other's feet and um, you know, not maybe not getting on uh, as well as they should do. I think there's going to be trouble at Ferrari because um, although a very good Formula 1 driver, I think... Um, Leclerc is overrated and I, th- I think um, Carlos has the potential to do what Daniel Ricciardo did to Vettel at Red Bull to him because it, this is the thing that always got, gets me about the praise that's loaded on Charles Leclerc is that Charles Leclerc was just a little bit better than Sebastian Vettel when Sebastian Vettel had been ruined it's not like he beat the Sebastian Vettel from like the multiple world champion winner when he was at Red Bull, it he was just a bit better than him when he was already broken, and so I've I've never really understood the the Lord and over Leclerc. No, I mean I think that I think that's a fair point, and you know I think people could level similar criticisms to to Carlos as well. I mean I think they are both, you know, potential number one drivers. Um, are they the next the next big thing? Yeah, again, I'm I'm not the best judge of that, but um, I think I think they're as as equal as um, probably any other pairing uh, on the grid. And um, yeah, from from what I know of inside the Ferrari camp, um, yeah, there is there is a bit of discord there. So uh, yeah, I, again, I think that could be interesting. And you know, Ferrari really failed to uh, you know uh, Benato certainly failed to kind of get a control of that situation last year and um you know it doesn't it doesn't really bode very well for uh, for this year either then does it i mean benotto no, so. really struggled to get a handle on anything last year really yeah i mean i think there was there was a rumor suddenly over the winter that he'd been been sacked and he kind of he felt like it was no surprise it was it was obviously a false rumor uh, or something that was misunder misquoted from someone, but um, yeah, um, it, it it it's interesting. He at one point he looked like the right man for the job, and then suddenly is now looking that maybe they, you know, um, Ferrari obviously is a, a, a bit of um, a pressure cooker of a team, and um, it may be great to be in charge of it when things are going relatively well, but it's a horrible place to be. <laughs> 
uh, and trying to manage things when, when things aren't going well. So maybe maybe he's one of those people that's um, you know good on a good day, um, but bad on a bad day, um, unfortunately. So um, and I've got you know I've got a bit of a a soft spot for him. I, mean, I can see you know, the good work that he has done, but equally you have to be critical of how the team have performed over the past couple of years and the direction it's taken and how it's managed, you know, particularly drivers. Well, you've got to look at when, like when Ferrari, the last time they were sort of successful, successful in the, the Schumacher era, and you know, you had a team of people there that were pushing Ferrari one direction. It, it never landed on the shoulders of one man. Um, and that seems mm-hmm. to, as soon as that was broken up and like John Todd and uh, Russ Braun had gone, <laughs> They, they never seem to try and follow that philosophy of having the the right people in the right positions in the team, and it, it fell on one person. Uh, that that seems it seems odd. Maybe maybe you need a Bonotto and a um, uh, who's the guy who who was the guy that took over? He was in during the um, I think Stefano Domenicali. Maybe you need like yeah. Bonotto and Domenicali in the team. Is that yeah. sort of situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think you do need a strong person leading the team. And I think everyone needs to have very clearly defined roles. And I think the problem with Bonotto being a technical person going into the team principal role, and obviously the, 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 the mix of technical people behind him, which has been a bit of a rotating um, sort of revolving door of people that have gone to the Sauber and come back. And now there's all of James, these people. James Allison at Mercedes, you know, from Ferrari. Exactly, yeah. Um, but you know, if you're thinking of um, uh, Simone Resta um, and um, who's the guy who was at the FIA is uh, Meekies. Um, yeah, there, there's there's a number of people there, and um, it it just feels a little disjointed and a little bit everyone's. You know, it doesn't feel that they, as you say, that kind of united front that, that um, you know everyone's clearly defined in what they do and aren't going to muck about. And um, you just kind of feel that with the the current management team, you know. Where if you think back to um, who was the team principal previously? Oh, uh, uh, Arriva Benny. Arriva Benny. Arriva Benny. <laughs> oh, the uh, the Arriva the Arriva Benny Hill show, as everyone called it, because it was that much of a farce. Well, it was. He cared a, though. <laughs> he was he was a good man manager um, at a high level. And you, you then had the technical people. He didn't have a clue what was going on the technical side of the sport. He probably didn't know what was going on most race weekends. But when people need to be told, go and do what you were told to do, that's what he could do. And I think that's a little bit is what's been lacking. And it often gets lacking in in some teams with under certain um, types of manager. Um, and I think you could probably look at, you know, maybe uh, Whitmarsh at McLaren was one of those people. He's a nice guy knows lots of what's going on, but somehow didn't get that focus and that drive out of the team. Uh, and I think that's where Ferrari are at the moment. I think the standard Ferrari way of doing things is, um, it is sort of more definition and shouting at people to get things done. And that, that, se- that seems to work. Yeah, what made me... Uh, what made me think Ferrari were in trouble or, or are in trouble was Carlos all of a sudden popping just a good time in on the last session of testing. It that, that to me screamed like Ferrari sending a car out with a thimble of fuel in it 
to get a good time on the board so that it just sort of silences the Italian media just for a couple of weeks till they can try and work out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, you know, um, we can read lots into testing uh, and, you know, lots of people put way too much effort in trying to um, understand where, where, where the teams are at. And But you know, I think certainly those first sessions um, in a couple of weeks away now, um, you know, on at Bahrain for the race uh, uh, is when it's all going to kind of stop talking. And yeah, again, you don't get the feeling that you know Ferrari have got a, an answer for the, that first qualifying session. Do you think Alfa Romeo might be quicker than the works Ferraris? <laughs> they were in some races last year. Um, you know, I would, you know, in with all due respect to Ferrari, I would love that. Um, I, I think it's very possible. I there could be times where they could out qualify them. I mean, certainly Alpha, you know, they're so hard to to, to judge. Um, yeah, that team, you know, I, every year I look at their new car, and I've done this with Salvers over many years, and you think. Wow, it's such a clever car. It's so well thought out. They've got all these bits and pieces on it, but somehow it never translates to great performance um, with a couple of very limited exceptions. Uh, and again, this year, it, it looks like a great car. I mean, you know, the, the livery looks great on it as well. Um, and, you know, I think Kimi really is having his kind of um, Indian summer in his career where he's just really just getting on with his job and enjoying it. And it really tells, you know, particularly in his race performances. Um, I just don't think that they've got the depth there to really um, climb, you know, higher than that third from the bottom position, really. Um, I think that's where very much where they're cemented. And I don't see, I don't see that changing. Um, which is which is a shame. Um, it is. And, you know, I think that the, 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 the writing's on the wall that Alfa Romeo will be um, withdrawing at the end of this year. And there's all sorts of talk that they could become the, the Renault second team rather than the Ferrari second team, which, you know, with Frederick Vasseur kind of makes some sense. Um, it doesn't kind of bode well for, you know, with the direction they're taking this year and... Um, Everything else, so I'm, um, you know, I, I, I'd love to be optimistic for, for the uh, the Hinville team, but uh, I, I really don't think that, you know, beating Ferrari is um, is is on the cards for them this year, unless Ferrari really do go into complete meltdown, which um, which of course is 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 always possible, I guess. I was going to say it's Ferrari never. Sorry. Right. Do you think they just turn back to Salba next year then? Again, it, the, the badging and that, I don't know. Um, it certainly won't be Alfa Romeo. From what I understand of this, the situation, it won't be Alfa Romeo next year, which means they've got to be going looking for a lot of money uh, from somebody. I didn't think it'd be Alfa Romeo when they didn't take Schumacher because that yeah. seemed to be the place that Ferrari would have liked to have put Schumacher was next to Raikkonen in an Alfa. And when they kept Giovinazzi, I thought there's something going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think the strongest talk is that it's going to be a, a Renault Alpine B team, um, and um, it's quite interesting because then you you're looking at every team seems to be looking at a bit of a B team setup at the moment, and who who would be the uh, Mercedes B team? You know, is it going to be Williams 
and clearly, obviously, you know, uh, Mercedes are putting a lot of effort into to Williams at the moment. I think maybe to keep the, the, their driver warm, but certainly, you know, there, there's lots of uh, stuff going on there. Um, or is it going to be Aston Martin? Um, but equally, Aston Martin have got their own kind of independent views of how they want to do things. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think there's going to be some swings and roundabouts in, in how teams lay themselves out, particularly with the uh, resource restrictions, with the budget restrictions and the wind tunnel restrictions. It's going to be useful to be able to drop key staff into um, a junior team, uh, to send some of your development to a junior team and you know even driver development and stuff. So, yeah, I, I think maybe the makeup of F1 could be changing uh, subtly uh, over the next few years. It's a strange one for Renault or Alpine, that big year. Renault always feels like they've got half a foot out the door of Formula One, but all of a sudden to, to then have a B team as well, it, it's just a strange situation. Yeah, and again, I suppose it depends where the money's coming from. Um, and I guess I suppose you could say that they need a lot less money now uh, with the budget restrictions. Although, as, as, as I see it, some of these budget restrictions are still way above what some of these, uh, you know, midfield and uh, lower grid teams spend anyway. Um, but I guess they will get a slight bonus in extra wind tunnel time because of their championship positions. Um, yeah. Uh, but then again, you know, there's there's you know, ways and means for um, marketing money to be found in, in odd ways, isn't there? Um, you know, I don't think we're going to suddenly see someone come in and put a big sticker on the side of the um, Salva team and say we're now the... God forbid, a rich energy Sauber team. I was just, or... just going to say, uh, if it's uh, if it's somebody with a very big beard coming in and putting a sticker on, I'd like to know if the sticker was paid for. Uh, He's coming back into Formula One. He told everyone it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Sponsor this year and a, a co-team owner next year is the uh, the, uh, the video for um, I'll tell yeah, you. I'll uh, tell you what. I'll have one of what he's having if you could only find it in a bloody shop. <laughs> uh, someone sent me a picture the other day of a rich energy branded um like long distance lorry bombing it down a motorway <laughs> so well, naturally I, it was probably full of red bull but it was a, <laughs> it was a, a rich energy van <laughs> I, I have a can within probably five feet of where i am i'm keeping that because i know in a one... glass case <laughs> It's going to be like a Chateau Neuf de Pap. It's a, oh, it's a, it's a 2018 uh, Rich Energy. It's like, wow, that vintage. You never see that come up. There's only um, seven of those made. <laughs> <laughs> I'll dust it off out of my wine cellar and bring it out on special occasions. Um, yeah. Um, there's, there's, yeah one, there's one which wasn't part of the six pack which hasn't got uh, not not suitable sale as, as an individual item, and that'll be the collector's piece. That'll be yes. But, yeah, I mean, I think you know, Formula One's going in quite a nice direction in terms of how it's, you know, trying to manage some of the costs um, from, um, you know, uh, an operational and an R&D perspective. So, you know, it, it, the marketing budget could, you know, from, from manufacturers and, you know, sub-branding and stuff could... Could see, you know, uh, a team like Sauber being bankrolled uh, as a B team. Um, quite how they would do that. Yeah, again, that's not, not my, my my strong point in Formula One, but there are ways and means. So, um, and again, you know, failing that, if if Sauber were left just to be a self-funded team, then you would, you know, seriously fear for their competitiveness and their future. So, let's hope something does get sorted out. 
Oh, I mean, the last time they were a self-funded team, they uh, tried to make the most of it by selling three seats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, again, they're you know, much more force India are one of those teams that do very well. Normally, they do the best when they have the least money, um, almost to a point, apart from one year where they literally couldn't even make wind tunnel parts. They were so poor. But um, other years when they've been able to um, be quite clever... Um, their wind tunnel team will come up with some quite clever ideas, which have very soon been copied. So, you know, maybe 2022 could be a, another one of those kind of um, key years for them. It'd be good to see whatever the Swiss team's called next year getting um, getting, be- getting mm. better results. I've, I've always I've always kind of liked them as the underdog back to when uh, back to when Frensen was driving for them. So in the first couple of seasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were some classic years. I've, I've been, um, with the wonders of cloud storage, being reminded of my photographs every every day. And when you go back and look at some of those early Saubers with the metallic blue paintwork, and they just look fantastic. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they were quite exciting and quite different cars as well. So, Don't forget um, it was... It's still there at Hinville. Yeah, it was Sauber as well. That, don't forget that brought Mercedes into the uh, modern era of Formula One. Mm. And maybe they could be their B team. There you go. Well, maybe unlikely at the moment, but you never know. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> and, and and Red Bull and Patronus. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to feel that they are kind of the always a bridesmaid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they're always just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the money, isn't it? I mean, they they got the BMW money and. <laughs> Uh, it all just went pear-shaped immediately, didn't it? I mean, it just never really performed for them. Although, obviously, again, they did get that win, but uh, you know, it just didn't progress in the way that you know we would have expected. So, yeah, I think you're right. They, they're, they're always going to be a bridesmaid. I've just realised I can't imagine a uh, a Patronus Salva without Johnny Herbert's helmet in it. That's it. Whenever when, when I think of that, I, I can just see Johnny Herbert's helmet in it as well. See, because I can, I can never. Whenever I see a picture, I forget that he was a, a, a Sauber driver. It's like, oh God, I didn't I remember that. So I it's, did. It's in your mind, I love Johnny Herbert when he was racing. It was, he was wherever he was. I, there was always a bit of me like plumbing for it. He always seemed like such a happy like a guy like all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. That was uh, that was our one and only testing session for this year, and um, it all gets going properly uh, the weekend after next. Um, even after such an intense season last year, we're all excited for it now. You feeling the same, Craig? Um, I I got to say, in lots of respects, as, as we went into the winter from the end of last year, I wasn't really that looking excited to this year. Um. But certainly seeing the the, you know, the, the the mix of testing performances, I'm certainly a bit more excited now than I was. Um, and I think it will be, uh, maybe for me, it won't be. I don't think it's going to be the most exciting technical year. Although I will be interested to see some of the cars um, once the bodywork comes off to see some of the stuff that's out there. But um, I think it could be a, pr- a particularly good year for racing this year. I think there's quite an odd mix there. Um, you've got the mix of t- you know new tyres, Teams switching their development on and off, you know, obviously trying to ramp up to make up for you know, a poor start or um, giving up if they've made a good start or just giving up if they, 
didn't even make a good start. So yeah, I mean, I think it could be a year that that tells a, a story, you know, in uh, overall. I mean, how many races is it now? I've lost track. It keeps changing, but twenty um, twenty three at the moment. Twenty three at the moment. Yeah. So over the next eighteen races, um, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I think I think it could be. I think it could be a vintage season. Um, particularly if you, you know, ignore, you know, who, who, who may, um, you know, be the uh, slam dunk for, uh, drivers and constructors championships. Oh yeah. I still think it's going to be really interesting to see who comes second this year. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and how close someone could, could potentially get to winning, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't think we'll know for definite until you know a few races in. I don't think it's gonna it's gonna unfold quite so straightforward as yeah. last year, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think it's gonna it, it, certainly it's gonna unfold in a, with quite a slow burn. Um, uh, and thereafter, I mean, I think certainly you know, the midfield, much like we saw last year, you know, could change all the way down to the last race. Um, you know, as teams really kind of push to get that you know extra position for last year but equally with the regulation changes you may actually want to be a bit lower this year to get more aero development time for next year so again it yeah it's so many variables um it, it could make for a fascinating uh, um year certainly well worth booking the um the compilation dvd now uh, already <laughs> because i think that it's going to be a fascinating watch <laughs> i i would like to know what's going to happen if let's just say for instance that um, Mercedes are in a better position than we think they are, but them and Red Bull are going to fight for a championship to the end of the year. Do you think you might get a situation like we had in 2008 where McLaren and Ferrari fought all the way to the end of the season for the world championship and then suffered? But probably till now, if you, if you want to put it that way, yeah, with the, uh, where they'd put so much resources in that come 2009 they were on such a back foot all of a sudden you know it's what what do you do in this case with such a big rule change do you do you go for short term like we have to win this championship or do you risk losing a championship to make sure that you're in a good position for next year well i mean i think that the the obvious candidates for that would be obviously mercedes and red bull fighting for the championship um i think of the two uh, Mercedes are going to be in a position to risk more to get this championship because I think they've got the depth and the money um, to still put enough effort in for 2022. I think Red Bull, and I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but I think they are slightly more resource restricted than the, you know, the, the spending power that Mercedes have clearly had over these past handful of years. Well, Red Bull have to be extra stretched as well now, considering uh, you know, as of next year, they're going to be a full constructor, aren't they? You know, it's the engine and car. So I, I think Red Bull have got a lot more to lose by really going all out for this year's championship. Um, so, yeah, theoretically, they could give up the fight a bit earlier in terms of car development. Um uh, you know, and then you've got the you know the, the driver's mentality is kind of coming into the mix as well. I think you would be looking more at people like um, if McLaren are behind Alpine, for example, um, going into the you know those last few races, um, which I would normally call the flyaway races, but I don't actually know what the, the final races of the year are now. Completely lost track of the, the uh, calendar. Um, could someone like McLaren or Alpine? 
really kind of, you know, stick their hands in their pockets and um, add loads of resource to this year's car um, if the regulations allow it. Um, I think that would be a much more difficult question for them to kind of have to, to struggle with. And I think that could be the, the more interesting thing because, they, as you say, they are two teams that potentially could make a, a step for 2022. Um, yeah. And, and equally, you know, the, the teams that are just going to throw their hands up dead early, you know, Ferrari are looking, you know, potentially like they could just throw the year away from what we're looking at at the moment. And obviously Haas and Williams would be quite close to the sort of decision as well. I think Alpine will chuck it in early. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think they would be the ones more likely to to not devote effort to this year than McLaren, for example. Uh, it, dep- it depends what Alonso wants. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he might have to stick his hand in his pocket. If that's the case. Um, <laughs> or sell well, a, sell a few more hats. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Again, you know, I think this is one of the things that's going to make it a topsy turvy year. I think what we see at the end of the first Bahrain race isn't going to be the competitive order and the, the natural order of things in three races time in six races time. And, you know, definitely not in uh, 23 races time. I think the other thing Red Bull might have though, if they decide to pull the plug uh, to concentrate on next year and, and by doing that, lose a world championship or lose a fight at least with Mercedes um, they could lose Max Verstappen as well. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. Again, I think it's um, there's a fine line for them to tread. Um, you know, I think the other thing is they just wind up Max and let him go and say, look, you want this championship, it's down to your driving, mate. Um, and see what he can do. Because <laughs> I think he's one, of the, he's one of those drivers, you know, you get just a very few that, you know, really can make the difference to the car, you know. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes uh, a true champion. You know, clearly, Lewis has had that. You know, Schumacher and Senna and uh, you know, a handful of other drivers have had that over the years. You know, I think that's something that Max has got. And if, if, if he wants to push and if he's that close, uh, I think he can make a, a bit of a difference. Um, and if you were looking at a competitive order at the end of the year, I mean, I think it's still hard to look past uh, Sir LH uh, for a championship. But second place, you know, I, I I I wouldn't put Bottas as a slam dunk for second in the championship this year. Definitely not. I I said last week that I think this is Bottas's best chance to win a world championship. This is before testing, because we've always said a a happy Lewis is a fast Lewis, and it I regardless of what happens like as far as media wise right now, where if if what we've been told is right, where he wanted a three-year contract with Mercedes and they've given him a year, when you're as good as Lewis Hamilton, that's a blow to your ego. And I, I just I can't see that not becoming a niggle through the season, especially when it comes to, to uh, contract times, unless they, five races in, he gets his two-year extension and everything resumes as normal. Uh, I think Bottas has the opportunity to Rosberg Hamilton this year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that could be that could be one scenario. I mean, I think the the biggest chance for Bottas, in my opinion, if if the cast doesn't start out great, Lewis, as you say, doesn't feel that love and his head dropped quite early. 
Um, now, we've never seen that before, um, but I could imagine it could happen. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think Jackie Stewart, he was actually lambasted for saying it. He said, you know, at some point, championships, cha- championship winners burn out. Um, and certainly Lewis has got lots and lots of drive. He's got lots and lots of ability. Um, if he can go out to start the season, start winning races, I don't think he's going to care about his contract because he's going to say, look, I'm winning all these races. But if for whatever reason that the car is a bit niggly, mm. um, then as I say, you know, he could, you know, just not have that motivation there that maybe he's had in the past. Um, again, I've got no reason to suspect that. But then it would be up to Bottas to be able to cope with the car that maybe Lewis isn't able to cope with. And I don't think Bottas has got that in him. No, uh, that that would be the issue. It would be a talent gap again then, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, so I think the only way that Bottas would, would win is if Lewis indescribably does, doesn't want to perform this year, mm. um, which would probably be much more under maybe your, your circumstances. Like um, a 2008 so, is what I was... No, sorry, not 2008. Yeah. Like a 2011 season where mm. he, his head dropped. He seemed to be constantly crashing into Massa for some strange reason. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's I, what I, I can say. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if Bottas has got the... Um, maybe not in a Rosberg style way of doing it because I just don't think Bottas is that type of thinking person. Not to say that he doesn't think or he's not clever or anything, but it just mm. I think Rosberg had a very very specific mentality that he had to bring, and I don't think that's the sort of person Bottas is. Um, Actually, to go still, against my own point, I think Rosberg was better too. Yeah, um, and then he's still got you know he's got a, um, a hard charging Verstappen to cope with. Um, you know, qualifying in those opening laps, um, overtaking in the race. I mean, you know, Bottas probably last year was one of those drivers, particularly at the beginning of the year, seemed to be doing lots of overtaking, but only because he would overtake someone and then have to overtake them again because they came straight past him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, we discount I, Perez as well, actually, thinking of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, he could be, you know, he could be a And everyone else. That would, yeah. I mean, I think the first championship would have to be a, a a really odd set of circumstances. But you know, you could see Wouldn't how it'd be it great, would though. Happen. And you know, maybe it would be deserved. You know, if he did get the championship at the end of it by just, you know, getting those results in rather than what we can expect this year, which could be some fireworks. Um, well, I mean, don't, I keep thinking, don't forget, we're on. Yeah, that. I- we're on Bottas 3.11 for work groups now. There's been that many different versions. <laughs> yeah, we've tried the porridges, tried the coffee. I mean, we're, we're running out of foodstuffs to, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to bring performance gains. Um, I think I think we're at the point where it's like Bottas, like what, 0.5. He's done like a Windows and skipped a couple to make it sound better. <laughs> just, just don't wait for Bottas Vista. It's going to be really disappointing. <laughs> Did it crash a lot? Oh. <laughs> hey. uh, IT jokes at F1. There's very, very rarely better things. <laughs> but no, like Perez, um, I, I, I see no reason why, if he could do it, he can't beat Verstappen. Though, if he's got, you know, let's just say the talent's there, we just haven't seen it yet because of the car he's been in. Uh, I, because I think I'm qualifying. Um... I think that the qualifying will be massively offset because I don't think Checo can put in pace. 
on that basis, he could well end up getting passed on strategy, and that will really depend on how Red Bull want to deal with him. Yeah. You know, um, we've got a strategy that will get you in the lead. Will he be allowed to do that? Mm. Probably not. Yeah. Because time, that, isn't that, it? <laughs> yeah. that could be really tricky. But I think that is, you know, again, I, you know, I, I, I sound like a broken record, but I think that's Checo's trump card. Um, so maybe it will be a, a, a two two horse race, you know, Bottas and Checo fighting it out and um, Max and Lewis. Um, fighting it out, which, think, which would be. I think Ricardo might be able to get himself in the mix somewhere. Uh, and then, yeah, one when they're busy looking at each other, you see Ricardo <laughs> up the inside <laughs> on Norris, uh, as we so often see. So yeah, I mean, again, it, it, when you look at it, it, some of these opening laps this year, I think, could be sensational. It's the stories as well. Like there's uh, there's a couple of like people. Like I think this is a massive, massively important year for Norris because it's. If he gets done by Ricardo in his first year in McLaren, Lando becomes a good Formula One driver and not champion elect. You know, if if he can yeah. if he can do Ricardo, he becomes one of the top guys. Or at least or if he matches Ricardo, he doesn't even have to beat him, I don't think. He just has to be like on um, with him. I know a lot of people that place him above Russell in potential. Um, again, I kind of ask these people these questions, and uh, you know that that's where they they feel he he potentially could be. But as you say, you've got um, a very confident Ricardo who is, you know, um, again one of those kind of really top drivers. And again, when you look at his race performances in particular, and his ability to get past cars when you really have to, um, it makes him a hard guy to race against. Um, it, it, in in another universe, he's in a different team, and he's a he's won a world championship or two, or right, right by now. I think that would be, you know, in um in a a, a non Mercedes world, I think that's exactly where 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 Ricardo could be, and he, I think he realizes that he equally Ricardo has it has to hit home this year that he's able to do that, um because I think if he has a lackluster year, um I think that could could very rapidly not if not end ricardo's career but i think it could limit the um the options he's got for um, wins and championships going forwards and the teams he gets to choose to drive for mm. I, I i hope he does well but i, I want lander to do well too and it's it's yeah. it's almost like no, they, they can't both do well <laughs> yeah we can't they, not everyone can win all of the time yeah, you, don't, you, you get three winners per race in NASCAR. This is completely different. <laughs> no, you do the broken yeah. the races down into three chunks now and you get a winner for each stage. I only follow professional motorsport. I don't know what NASCAR is. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't played enough iRacing. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's gonna it's gonna be um it's gonna be an interesting season and uh, hopefully an interesting season of Drive to Survive next year when it comes out about it. Talking of which, that's out this weekend. The uh, tw- oh, the twenty Friday Friday the twenty twenty version. Uh, who's going to be the first person to watch the whole thing? And post it on social media. Well, <laughs> it took me ages last time. The media have already watched it. I fast forward most of it, so yeah, I tend to be even quite quickly. The media have already watched it, and some people are saying that uh, they overly milk Roman Grosjean's crash in Bahrain. Like really milk it, and uh, also um, 
they show Ferrari in a much worse light than was probably actually happening at the time. Yeah, I mean, that would that sort of fit in with the general narrative that they use, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, it's TV. It's a, it's for drama, isn't it? You know, that's what you got to remember. It's not necessarily exactly as as it happened. No, no, absolutely. And I think that, and it, it's, again, it's not my cup of tea. And, and I'm a very particular type of F1 fan. Um, but when you do go on to, you know, social media, you know, particularly um, sort of Reddit and stuff like that, where you get lots of the uh, younger or new fans, the amount of people that it has brought in as an interest to the sport is incredible. Um, and it's like, well, should, isn't this what the TV company should have been doing anyway? Because there's nothing, there's nothing they're doing that all the other cameras around the race weekend. They've just turned uh, into a reality TV yeah. show. That's that's all it is. It's. The, well, I think the... they've just they've just stopped to chat to people and brought a story out rather than just talking about well you know who's going to be winning this race you know with you know, a dozen X F one drivers standing in front of a camera for two hours for the race, uh, just whispering on about what might happen in the race or then you know hours after, rather than you know, pulling the, the, the real stories out of there because, you know, I think what comes across in Drive to Survive is once you get people away from the, you know, the the, the, the run-of-the-mill um, press conferences, there's some real characters out there, you know. And yeah. I think the sign of being an absolute example, um, when you put them in a position where they can just talk, um, it's fantastic. Um, the beginning of last season that they have drive to survive, I think sums up it, what its success and it's the lack of sanitization. And it's, it's something that a, I don't, I don't think, uh, for want of better words, I don't think legacy media gets, um, and, but they can't get it because of, uh, a hundred complaint letters that, that would come in. But that big opening scene where you've got Ricardo walking down the uh, with his trainer walking down at, at Monaco, and he says, "Oh, it's Netflix. Well, they're a bunch of cunts, aren't they?" And it's you you can't have that anywhere else but someone like Netflix. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly on that extreme, I, I think that they do they do somehow manage to extract a story from a weekend in the way that. Um, your average TV broadcaster doesn't do either during the race weekend or at some point up to the start of the next race. Um, and you know, it, they literally would only talk about on-track action and maybe uh, you know, chat to some drivers. It, it, it doesn't bring the stories out. And it, I think it's because it's so story-based, I think that is what's really lacking. Um, and there's, you know... It, there are big stories, but equally, there's lots of people. You know, I think one of the things that's been fantastic from the Mercedes um, social media team is when they put their engineers on with these debriefs. Now, obviously, that really excites me because they talk technical stuff. But when you get someone like James Allison um, uh, or the other James chatting about strategy and about things in a really clear and accessible way without kind of lecturing you and without making it too geeky, everyone goes, oh, actually, no. That's really interesting. I really like that. And these people aren't, you know, boring backroom boys. Um, and that starts to come across because, you know, if, having been in the F1 paddock and spent lots of time chatting to people across the teams, 
you don't get people talking to you like they do in the press conferences. You know, yeah. That's not, that, yeah, maybe Kimi Raikkonen, but the only because he talks the same way all the time anyway. Um, you know, these people are, you know, they are personalities. They are, have got interesting stories to say and it just doesn't get picked up except for some reason by Netflix and the uh, Mercedes AMG social media team. I think that's uh, what Mark Priestley got in his book. Like the, the it's still my it's my favorite Formula One book. The the mechanic I think what what he mm. wrote was great, and it's it's the it's the human aspect that Formula One lacks humanity so often. Um, it does, and again, it, it's very much reflected by the way that the PR people and the TV people. It's just talking to drivers in press conferences, and that is possibly the worst way to get any of the story across. Um, but no one seems to have kind of picked up on this which is you know a real shame it's just um, just very bizarre you talk about a book with f1 humanity in there which features ron dennis quite heavily <laughs> <laughs> strange strange juxtaposition um but i i you know without what this kind of sees the narrative i think that actually does kind of bring us on to the other um talking point sadly from the weekend there's someone that did bring that um humanity <laughs> into uh into the broadcast yeah absolutely yeah um for those for those that don't uh that don't know murray walker sadly passed away at the age of 97 this weekend and uh, i think i think damon hill actually said it best that we never thought we'd be in a world without murray no 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 not at all um and you know i think it's lovely in some respects that we we never will because we've got all of you know, all of his broadcasts, you know, all of those blooper videos that he did, the the pizza advert, which I think is an absolute <laughs> classic. Damon Hill. Who would have thought um, them two could put a performance in like that? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean, I think as soon as he stopped commentating, I think we did actually lose something from the, the commentary because no one really brought that level of excitement to a broadcast in the way that, that Murray did. And, no, uh, it was all genuine though as well, wasn't it? Genuine excitement for his passion for the sport. It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, this is an exciting part of the race. It was. It was, He he loved it as much as anyone yeah. else. He he was the biggest fan of the sport. And what you were doing, you were listening to the biggest fan of the sport tell you how much he loved what was going on, and that's what made him so special. By getting excited and. If you think of certainly those of us that you only have used to be able to watch the Grand Prix highlights back in the, for me, was through the 80s, um, that would be maybe on Sunday night, sometimes Monday, sometimes only on Monday evening, depending on the timing of the Grand Prix. You'd only get 30 minutes that would start with the start of the race and end with very rarely even the podium. And sometimes Murray wasn't even at the Grand Prix, just over in the UK to the highlights. But somehow, Mm with nothing other than the, the dodgy timing screens that they would put up in the 80s, he conveyed a degree of excitement about that um, race that often really wasn't there because there was lots of very boring races in the 80s, despite what lots of people may, may remember or may, may tell you. Um, and it was fantastic. And, um, you know, I've, I've yeah, as we all have, kind of reflected on the impact Murray had. And for me, I got into motor racing very much um separate to the rest of my family no no one in my family was really big into motor racing or big into cars or anything like that so in i i've sort of come to realize that murray was that uncle of yours that was 
really keen on something that you could chat to. Now, obviously, I, like, sadly, I didn't get to chat to him until many years later, but he was the person that gave you that excitement and that interest in the sport. And, um, yeah. you know, I think, you know, for me, that's, I've been lucky enough to make that into a career. For lots of other people, it's just been a lifelong fascination and fandom of the, of the sport. And one did... of my strange... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go on. I'll say one of my strange but, like, uh, very uh, unique Murray Walker memories was, uh, I think, was the centenary of the Isle of Man TT when he came He came over here. And uh, the local radio station let him do uh, uh, commentate on the parade lap. And uh, they had notes ready to go. Um, so he knew which bikes were which and what was coming out when. He didn't need them. He he was th- these were bikes that he hadn't seen for sixty years because his dad would race on the Isle of Man TT, yeah. and, and him and him and his dad actually commentated I think up until sometime in the sixties when it was still a uh, part yeah. of the um, uh, GP calendar, and um, yeah he was just like oh this is the you know the nineteen forty seven Norton and he hadn't seen that bike since nineteen forty seven. But he knew what it was, and he knew what races it had taken part in. It's like, oh, this, this, this is bikes very dear to me. This is the, this is the Royal Enfield. You know, like, so how do you know these things? Like, he never, yeah. he never forgot anything. His, his passion was so deep that he just, he remembered every little detail going back years. And I know that wasn't a world broadcast. That was only broadcast locally here on the Isle of Man, but. Anyone who listened to, to that at the time, and I don't know if it's available to listen to anywhere again now, but it will that be. was really that it will be that was really really special because it was yeah it was almost dumbfounded how much he, how much he knew and just didn't need the notes just just reeled it all off. Well, he he spent you know, he's he's like um, sort of lots of us kind of sort of mega keen fans. He really did kind of just soak up all the information. Um, I spoke to a number of magazine editors um, and they said that, you know, when they started a magazine up, he would often be someone they would contact um, and, you know, uh, get an interview. Um, and one of the magazines that I, I've, I've written for, Race Car Engineering, which started up um, at the very beginning of the 90s, if I remember. And they got a stand at one of the motivation shows, as, as you do, uh, with their first issue. And the first person on their stand... And their first subscription was Murray Walker. Um, and I've, I've heard the same story many, many times by he goes, yeah, I'll pay for a subscription to your magazine. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on. He'd have probably got a free one. And frankly, <laughs> most of the other commentators probably wouldn't have been interested in it anyway. But uh, he really did. Um, and if I could just kind of indulge momentarily, I, I only ever really probably met Murray once. Um, I came across him in the paddock many times, um, uh, but we were at um, the Benetton, or maybe in the Renault, that was a Renault launch, uh, where they launched the car in Sicily, in deference to their tobacco sponsor. So they did it in this big opera hall, and Murray was on the plane out with all of his British journalists, which was fantastic. And it's the first time I've been close to him. I had a friend who was a photographer that was with us, and he just sits and starts chatting to you as though he knows who you are, and maybe he didn't. But he just chat and he was interested and it was fantastic. And we thought, this is great. He's an amazing guy. Um, and then they then ran the car through the streets of um, Palermo. And at the end of it, I can't remember which driver it may have been, uh, Button, I think, actually. Um, 
uh, did some donuts in the car in the middle of this square. And then as he finished the burnout, the car stalled. And then all of the crowd, uh, which was massive, as you could imagine, stormed down to the car. And we were kind of sat there and there's like people running all around us. And me and, me and my friend, uh, as I said, were uh, kind of getting a bit worried. He says, well, we better get back to the coach. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get because it, it felt like a riot was kicking off. It was a little bit scary. Um, and then I was walking back. It's like, oh, shit, Murray's going to be in that crowd. How the hell is he going to get out? We walked up the stairs in the coach, sat in seat number one with a big smile on his face with Murray Walker. <laughs> he, he the sandwich. And it's like, oh, Murray, are you okay? Were you involved in it? He goes, oh, no, no, I didn't go and watch the car. I've just been sat here all the time. He goes, well, what's been going on? And it's like, oh, my God, I thought we'd lost Murray Walker at a riot. And it's, um, <laughs> um, it was, it, it, he's one of these people that catches your eye and smiles, as I say, as though he knows you. And then when I'll ask a question as though he's, you know, knows exactly what you've been doing all your life. And it's just, um, Always, whenever you see him, just brings a lovely, warm feeling to you. And hopefully for every fan that's only ever heard him or seen him on broadcast gets that same feeling. So, um, yeah, sadly, it's a big loss um, from the world. But we can all go back and look at, as I say, all of those, all the old footage of him making all those fantastic bloopers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's rare that you get somebody that, it, well, in any sort of prominence that when it, there's very little, like, bad things said you know there's very little criticism you know like you say about the bloopers you you pull it up but it's fun you know it's no no one ever no one was criticizing him for it and like calling for murray walker to be replaced whereas you know it's you you get quite a lot of stuff thrown at like martin brundle or crofty or uh other commentators it didn't yeah. happen to murray walker I mean, I think his bloopers, they, were, they weren't mistakes. They were slips of the tongues and uh, miscommunication of, of, of grammar. It wasn't that he said that, you know, um, you know, why is this car suddenly on a, such a slow lap up because he's in the pits, as you would often get with lots of the other commentators. It was him saying, you know, the, the beak of Cerner's car is ahead of Brundle's car or whatever that, that, that classic thing was. It was like... The, the, uh, the car in front is completely unique apart from the one following. <laughs> Again, and yeah. I know that there, there are posters of, of his, his comments, which you can buy and stuff, and it's like, they're, they're endearing. You know, they're not mistakes. Yeah. They're you know mannerisms and i think it was know. his excitement though wasn't it it was his excitement that that forced those errors it wasn't out yeah. of um it wasn't out of you know boredom it wasn't out of not knowing what he was talking about it was the sheer adrenaline pumping through his veins that made him so excited he muddled his words up sometimes and that's what that's why it's so funny i mean he, he always yeah. used to say that when he was excited his uh, his mouth was two heartbeats ahead of his brain <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Damon Damon Hill's tweet I found quite heartwarming. If you saw it, it was yeah, something, did, yeah. something along the lines of "Tonight we all have lumps in our throats." Yeah, now we've got I to thought, start because yeah. we've all got lumps in our throat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that 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 one thing sums up his 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 story through the sport. Obviously, you know, over the years and uh, his enthusiasm and his, you know, clearly his love for Damon and his way of finding the right words. And yeah, I mean, I I. Like all of us, I think we all choke up when we read that over the weekend. And um, you know, what, what a fantastic epitaph for um, for a career. Absolutely. I mean, this, he's one of the he's one of the few people where we could have a tribute to on this show where all of us are laughing. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could literally just play back some of his, all of his playbacks, and yeah, you know, no, no one would be critical. Yeah, and everyone would, you know, be smiling, have a tear in their eyes. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love, I'd love yeah. to do it, but FOM would probably uh, have some words with us involving cease and or desist. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it's okay, Bernie X wouldn't burn us anymore. <laughs> I'll give Stefano a ring. He's in charge now. Um, no, I, th- I, I, I think you know. There's been a, there's been so much said about Murray Walker, and I think there, there will be for years to come. And yeah, I, I tweeted this out sort of on behalf of all of us on the podcast. And if it ha- if it hadn't been for Murray Walker, there probably wouldn't have been a three legs four wheels. No, no, there wouldn't have been not at all. No, yeah. I mean, I think I think a lot of us owe our uh, passion for the sport from from his, you know being nurtured by him uh, with his commentary. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Lee, have you got a Who's a Total Shunt for us this week? And Craig, do you want to join in with this one? Have you, have you done this one before? The, uh, the, t- the ten clues, it could be about anything, and it has been technical items before. Uh, no, I haven't done this one before, so yeah, go on, throw, throw me in. Right. Throw me under the bus. Lee, have, <laughs> have you got one to hand? Or am I feeling I again? I have. It's by Centerio Nasty, and I, oh, I hell. forgot we were going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> these these are always tricky. Right, Santerio Nasty, just just to give a bit of background, always comes up with these incredibly tough ones. So Santerio right. Nasty is Finnish. I think this is a, an important thing to start on. So there's a chance it could be a rally driver. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's some, some slight Lee background for Scarbs. I'm dyslexic, and I really struggle with pronouncing names to the point where... I can't actually read the name of this one. I think that's always a nice part of it, though. It's part, it's part of a total shunt is having the person's name read incorrectly. So he's definitely Finnish. <laughs> Probably not Keki Rosberg. Right. Clue number one. Oh, there's, there's various rules. You have to do a guess after every three clues. Uh, you get three guesses. Pick one at the end. Uh, I was born yeah. in... 1955. 1955. Okay, so that makes them 66 this year. I was European karting champion in 1975, followed the, uh, following that up with a European Formula Ford cha- Formula Ford uh, 1600 title in 1977. So 20 when the one karting. That's quite late for karting, isn't it? Hmm. Well, it is now, but I don't think it was probably in the 70s. Interesting. Fair point. Then I had some success in Formula 3, Formula 2, but I never got a championship there. I would like a guess. Don't come at me once. God, I'll bet you would. (laughs) (laughs) So if we're looking at a, a Formula 1 driver, potentially... Is it going to be somebody that came into the sport early 80s? So we would be looking at somebody around the era of Keke Rosberg if we were going with someone finished, would we not? I feel like I don't want to be lulled into the false false sense of security of it definitely being a Finn, and I also think Lee would know how to say Keke Rosberg. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Are we, are we definitely saying Finn, or are we just was that Scandinavian? It's been, it's been it's been sent in by somebody from Finland. Yes, yeah, Santari has a habit of sending us difficult Finnish racing drivers. 
but I don't uh, know that he specialises exclusively in Finnish drivers. Right. Um, early 80s. Stefan Johansson? No, it'd be too easy for Lee to say. Wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> I preferred Sean's face. <laughs> I can't think of anything better, to be honest, if we're if we're going down the Scandinavian slash Nordic route. Hmm. Uh yeah, certainly someone that started, because obviously you had some Swedes in the late eighties. Uh, sorry, the late seventies. Um like Nilsson or uh, Borgood. But I think they're probably a bit too old. Mm. Mm. Let's go with Stefan Johansson as the first guess. Just as, as guess number one of three. Yeah. Uh, clue number four. My first visit to F1 was in 1982, uh, and it was filled with nothing but retirements and DNQs. <laughs> 82 all right so it was somebody in a somebody in a particularly crap car mm-hmm. number five i had 71 entries 64 starts and uh, and retirement percentage of around 75 percent i take it 70 percent it says around 70 Bloody wow that's okay. quite high <laughs> that must be even higher than julian palmer <laughs> the most unlucky driver ever to step into Formula One, but then, uh, but then had to step out quickly to avoid the uh, inevitable flames. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've had more success in IndyCar and kart and World Sports Car Championship. Um... Oh, I do seem, to, I do seem to remember that um, Santeri once sent in Ari Lyondike, and you really struggled to get that one out. <laughs> but I don't think I don't, I, I don't think you're doing I, a repeat. I have a funny feeling that maybe I made fun of that surname. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like a guess. Oh God, another one. Oh, so what? Was this that? is even this is even more tricky because I've nailed a bottle of wine through this podcast. Oh God, I'm just going <laughs> to briefly disappear because I need to rescue the um, SD card from the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so you said uh, sports cars, IndyCar, and kart. Yep. Right, okay. Um, Just trying to think of anyone that had been knocking on a bit when Mansell was in uh, Mansell was in kart. I think I can say. I think I can say this name. I think I've worked it out. Okay, so it's not it's not Ari Lyondike then. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. We've had the rubbish cars in '82 because that was at the start of the turbos. That would suggest that he had that many retirements, unless he was an Ocella driver, and they never finished. Who drove Ocella? Uh, I don't know. I'm not very good at '80s F1 because I didn't oh, start no, no. watching until 1991. Is the first year I started watching. I'm trying to think because that was one of my first years I really kind of followed it. I sell a word, see a Pletty that died. I think he was teammate to 
Garrier by then. Uh, neither of them really kind of fit in with the. Yeah, no. yeah I don't, don't think don't think Jarier went to uh, went to the US, did he? No, no, no. He was too old as well. Um, <sighs> but I can't think of anyone even slightly Finnish or Scandinavian that year. Um, so if I've I'm looking down the clues here. If, if if it's the one I'm thinking of, I'm thinking Scarves might be able to help us out with clue number eight. I'm, th- I'm thinking that's when. If it if it doesn't come for clue number eight, I think you've fucked. I think we're gonna. Have, I think we're gonna have to bin this guest off, aren't we? I have nothing to offer. Me neither. Um, no, I'm I'm struggling with someone that debuted that year. Uh, clue number seven. I've had three pole positions uh, in F1, but no wins. Blimey. Um... Three pole positions in F1, but no wins. Right. Okay. Uh, number eight. Uh, uh, uh. You, do, you don't have to give a, 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 a guess now. Yeah, okay. I think I've got I've got a name in my head. Uh number eight, I won the World Sports Car Championship for Jaguar in nineteen ninety one. Oh wait, wasn't that Martin Brundle? <laughs> Again, I think Lee would know how to say that. <laughs> uh, I have no, I friends have called trolling. Martin. <laughs> even even if we forget Brundle, I have friends called Martin. <laughs> it, would get, it would get awkward if I couldn't yeah. if I couldn't read that. Okay. That's that's changed it because it's only a couple of drivers I can think of. Um, eighty-two debut. No, Martin Brundle didn't make his debut until eighty. No, I was thinking of four, eight, five. So not Brundle. And not um, my guess is wrong. Okay. Um, well, Jaguar and eighty-two. The only two people I connect that with would be the Tolman drivers, which would be either Derek Warwick. Or I think he was in the Jaguar team, Teo Farby. Oh, oh okay. Well, yeah, okay. But I think Warwick debuted in eighty one in F one. So we've got another two clues before uh, mm-hmm. uh number nine. Uh, I I was last, last active in Formula One uh at the Indy 500, until a certain uh, un, un, until a certain Spaniard, and then the clue the, the clue's gone. I'm gonna say took me out, but it doesn't seem finished. What active in Formula <laughs> One and the Indy 500? That's not been part of the things since the 60s. Right, so the race at the Indy 500 until a certain Spaniard is what this says. All right, no. Go. <laughs> Oh wait, hang on. The first Formula One driver to be in the Indy 500 until a certain Spaniard. Yes. Right. I see. Ah, I right. see. So someone who was actively involved in F1 and happened to compete in Indy 500 in that season. It doesn't help me. No, it doesn't. Honest, but... but no, but at least we, at least we understood the question, <laughs> even though we don't know the answer. <laughs> Number ten. I'm Italian. 
So Teo Fabi then. Yeah, is there a, is there a spaffer? There is. I drove for Benetton in 1986 and 1987. Yeah, it's Teo Fabi then, isn't it? I don't yeah, know it is. positions. Yeah, I am Teo Fabi. That goes to Scarves. Yes, definitely. Well done, Scarves. Thank you for that. <laughs> My memory of the Tolman team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was uh, that was a good one. Thank you for that, Santeri. Um, you always keep us on our toes, and yeah. ke- keep sending them in with um, preferably as difficult a name as possible, so that uh, so that Lee has to struggle, especially during lockdown when he usually does a bottle of wine during the course of a show. I, mm. I, I will say that I did get it right. I worked out my own little head, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> how do you uh, how do you go about sending in a total shot? Uh, you can send me a PM on Twitter at a total shunt, or you can send me a PM on Instagram at a total shunt. I'm reminding people now because we've had such a long gap between shows and actually doing them. If you've already sent me one, just give give a little bump, like remind me about it, and and I'll, it'll be further up the list. And you can also send uh, reserve ones in for uh, for just in case to threelegsfourwheels at gmail dot com, and uh, you can use that as the uh, standard get in touch email for the show as well. Um, you can get us on all the other socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Three Legs, Four Wheels. And individually, we all are... At Sean Cowper. At Flood21. At Pablo100. And Craig. At A Total Shunt. And at Scarbs Tech. Right, if you want to, uh, if you want to help the show, and uh, at the moment, while we're, in, uh, while we're in lockdown for the next three weeks or so... Um, you can subscribe to Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash three legs four wheels. You'll get the uh, you'll get the show earlier than everyone else, and um, it will also keep us in things like um, mic cables and uh, software licenses and things like that. Because oh, and probably a new SD card if the cat's just demolished the last one. I think I managed to fight it away from her, but she was very keen. Mm. And uh, once once we get back to normal, we'll uh, we'll probably start doing the uh, doing the Patreon shows again at uh, some point, so you get an extra non F one show from the lot of us. I think that's about it for tonight, isn't it? Really? Yes, oh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just want to say thank you very much to Craig for uh, for coming on. Love the season previews that you do, and um, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be joined by you again at some point later on in the season. And we can see if any of these upgrades have happened. No, absolutely. Let's have a catch-up mid-season. And uh, thank you very much. It's always fun. And, uh, yeah, you always put me in the corner with the questions. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. That's great. Right, uh, we'll be back next week. And uh, we'll have virtual Statman Sean Kelly on with us all being well. So, um, it's going to be... A, if you've got a who's a total chunk to send in, make it really difficult for them. <laughs> so, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.